Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We know of new methods of attack. Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your very weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster. I am still gamefully employed at a place called Freethink Media, and I do various things there. I am also still, I'm someplace. We're not in the studio. We're not together. And by we, not referring to Moynihan, who is apparently still on the road from DC. He's a journalist, which I mean, that's still essential work in this country. So he hasn't been prevented from leaving and traveling about. But as I understand, he's going to join us eventually. Um, but I am joined by Matt Welch, editor at Large of Reason magazine. Matt, how are you? Did you leave your house today for any reason? Uh, yeah, I walked down the street to uh, get some Mexican food and some margaritas. That's very exciting. Um, that's good. Support the locals. Just the curbside margarita situation. It's uh, it's outstanding in our neighborhood. No, actually, it's, it was very uh, uh, uplifting to see uh, how many places are serving um, alcohol to the alcoholics who live in my neighborhood. That's good. Yeah, it is. New York is in a super bad place every day. There's a guy. What's his name? Like Ryan Stuke or Stuik for CNN, who like publishes. You know, this many people died. Uh, uh, you know, uh, yesterday, the day before, the day before. Um, and he had a thing where I think now this is as of 24 hours ago and we're recording this on the evening of what is it Thursday, Thursday um, that. So on by Wednesday, like one out of every 582 New York City residents are, are dead. Right. At this point. So, like, it's getting grim, although the, the numbers are improving, like they're improving in terms of the number of people who are dying per day. That is going down for sure. Um, but like. The number of New Yorkers who are dead going up. That is super going up. That is going yeah. up. Yes, that is yes. going up. But in, in, in a sense, that, like, things, are, in your... things are improving. I'm, I'm tracking all of this. I'm, I'm paying very close attention to the data. I'm reading all of the news stories about how terrible things are there. And I, I will tell you that when I introduce myself to neighbors here who still, while they keep their distance and most of them are wearing masks, they do walk up to you and have conversations with you. And today I mentioned to some folks, oh, yeah, we're we're from Brooklyn. We're staying with my mother-in-law. I actually watched them shudder as they heard me say Brooklyn. And then I tried to convince them that I'd been here for a sufficient amount of time so that they didn't need to be nervous. Of course, I didn't mention that I'd been back to New York within the last two weeks. But, you know, minor details. Just today, right, uh, the, the Gov came out with some new stats that like 21 percent of New York City residents have already been infected, uh, extrapolating from a sample size of 3,000 that we haven't seen right. yet. They have the antibodies. But they have the antibodies. Um, so, yeah, you're absolutely spreading disease across <laughs> the land uh, down in Virginia. Well, what's what's interesting about that study, which is totally not a randomized sample, they stood in front of like grocery stores and did some other weird stuff. It is almost certainly the case from my vantage point, and we haven't read the study, study yet, we only have the, the early reports here, that it probably undercounts the number of people that might have antibodies. I mean, if you're standing outside of a gro grocery store, the various people who might be convalescing at home because they're actually struggling right. with the disease 
are obviously not getting <laughs> tested. Um, people who are institutionalized are not getting tested. People in nursing homes are not getting tested. Um, and the really busy people who've been on the front lines, medical professionals, police officers, et cetera, also not getting it tested. They're at particularly high risk of coming into contact with the virus. So I, I suspect the numbers might be a little higher, but we'll see eventually. I'm sure additional work will be done. But we're talking a bunch. And even though we don't have Moynihan, we do have a guest with us. Not just someone a who guest. Very, God. Yeah, someone who we're very honored to have join us because of all of the people who have never been on the podcast, and there there are many, um, not many important people, this gentleman is almost certainly the most requested guest. Jonah Goldberg, editor-in-chief at The Dispatch. Uh, he's also the author of many, many books. Uh, Liberal Fascism, I believe, many. is one. Like, Suicide of the West is another, and we should we should talk about that as well. You've read his columns. You've seen him on television. You can't see his uh, his newly groomed quarantine beard. Uh, but we are delighted to have you with us, Jonah, also host of the Remnant podcast and something else that I was supposed to say. And I probably forgot. A master of flamenco dancing. But anyway, <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, you guys are uh, you're a legacy media in the podcast world. You know, um, <laughs> It's great to be here. That's a way of putting it. Yeah. We've been at this a little while. It does feel like, do you remember in the early 2000, mid 2000s, there was this brief moment where all the jokes were about how everyone has a blog. Yeah. And we're sort of in the same moment for podcasts now. Absolutely. Back when there was more beefing uh, among the places that had institutionalized blogs because the uh, Nash Reviews, The Corner, came out in mm -hmm. what, like 2000, 2001, around there or so? Closer, 2000, closer to 2002, I think. Reason, reasons Hit and Run was like 2001, 2000, whatever. We were pretty close yeah. back then. I wasn't a, a full-time employee for Reason or anything like that. But um, we had uh, someone do a satire of the corner at Hit and Run. I remember back that. Back in the yeah. day, which was which was uh, uh, really great. It's a lot of like, you know, oh, I have great respect for David French, um, you know, my great esteemed colleague, but he's wrong about, uh, you know, uh, yeah. porn time story or hour or whatever. But uh, it was uh, I'm, I'm 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 pretty sure at least four or five people at each magazine were shot on street corners because of. That. Well, I mean, there was the whole <laughs> week, the reprisals, uh, the West Coast, East Coast uh, aspect to yeah. it, which just was. Not going to be forgiven too quickly. That is a racist joke, by the way. <laughs> just want to just want to make certain to underscore that. Yeah, just it's fine. Ju just I'll, just to I'll be clear, it. you're from the East Coast, so yes, it's an anti-white joke, uh, Camille. Just yes. to be clear, that white people have been shot on street corners too. <laughs> <laughs> well, Joan, as I mentioned, it's great to have you here. I, I wonder sure. how how you've been managing throughout this quarantine period, or at least the shelter in place, stay at home, non-essential travel is restricted period. Have you been following the rules? Uh, not, not, I mean, I've been following the rules. I've certainly been following the rules of common sense and all of that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But the, the weird thing for me is that, um, like one of my favorite stock characters in apocalyptic movies and TV shows is the guy who was a nobody who then like after the zombies take over or after a water world or the postman, whatever turns out that this mild mannered Xerox repairman actually had these perfect psychological skill set to be like a warlord. <laughs> um, and the thing is I have been practicing 
between my misanthropy, my germophobia, uh, um, you know, my telecommuting, I'm, I'm kind of like Danny from Karate Kid. I've been waxing on and paint the fence and doing all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, because of this thing, it turns out I've got freaking superpowers. So like I've been, I've been writing my column, smoking cigars in my car for 10 years. And now people all of a sudden think what, instead of what is that weirdo doing? They're like, Oh wow. He's so, he's socially distancing. He's so responsible. You know, So that part of it, I feel a little guilty about because I've arranged my life in a way where it's not the economic or the, lifestyle hit that it is for some other people. Sure. Um, but uh, th- the stuff that you need to be able to do, stay away from other people, work alone, work, you know, over the internet. I've, I've, I've got some skills in that department. And so that, that part has not been that rough for me, but about the whole emotional drain is I think hard for everybody. You know, this whole, the contemplating what the future holds and all the rest has been kind of ugly. And I got friends who are really suffering. So, When's the last time you went to Washington, D.C., right? You're supposed to go to the AEI, American Enterprise Institute, like at least once a month to smoke a cigar on the balcony of the roof and then leave yeah. in order to get your whatever the hell uh, pay from there. But like, uh, do you do you interact with human beings who are not in your immediate family ever anymore? Um, there's a lot of zooming. Yeah. Right. Which which sounds like a weird 90s club drug. But um, (laughs) uh, and but AI closed down because of Corona long before there was a quarantine order or any of that kind of stuff. And the dispatch actually has offices, but we've made we basically closed those down around the same time. So for the most part, no, I haven't really. And I can't go to my cigar shop, which is my normal place to do most of my work. So uh, for the most part, no, I haven't face to face really dealt with a lot of other human beings. When you say close down early, is that kind of along the same lines as a lot of the tech bros that I know in the Valley who saw this coming from a mile away and were like telling me in December, like, oh, my God, like short all of the airlines. And I didn't listen. Not that it wasn't that ahead of the curve, but it was close. Uh, You know, Scott Gottlieb, who you see everywhere, Mm. he's a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and he was like guys no shitting around this is a serious thing pretty early AI canceled a huge it's most important conference of the year which is you know at the beginning of March pretty far in advance um and they just sort of basically said you know Monday's the last day to get anything you need from the office and Tuesday we're closed and that was a month ago something like that a little more Mm -hmm. but you also heroically broke out of the shackles recently. Yes, I went rogue. Jonah Goldberg. What was like uh, that? Like, like, uh, how, what does what does America look like out there? <laughs> well, so it's funny. Uh, right, so, to people who don't know, um, last Friday, uh, my wife and daughter and I we hit the road. Um, we drove down to Front Royal to get these cheeseburgers from this place. The Washington Post wrote up, and then we we're like, we're not stopping here, and we kind of film and Louised it down to Roanoke. <laughs> <laughs> where we um we spent the night in uh a Walmart parking lot in uh. Roanoke sleeping in the car so and um and then the next day we actually drove like <clears throat> so people should understand first of all I've been doing cross country drives and crazy long drives for 25 years now um the year after we got married 
My wife's from Fairbanks, Alaska. We went to Alaska. My father-in-law gave us his 10-year-old caddy as, as we needed a second car because the baby's on the way. We drove that motherfucker back from Fairbanks to D.C. Ooh. Um, that's a drive. Mm. And um, I've probably gone cross-country 15 times in the last 20 years. Wow. And wow. So we like it. We kind of have, that's another one of these things that we've been sort of practicing for a long time. So we really didn't mind sleeping in a car. We didn't mind, you know, just driving and not really getting out and doing much. Um, but we, we went from Roanoke to Knoxville. We spent the night in Knoxville, uh, actually at a hotel. Um, but we do this, my wife and daughter who were in Utah for a couple of weeks during the lockdown at Fant with family, they mastered this whole thing. The second you get in the room, it's all, Clorox wipes on everything. <laughs> um, you know, uh, just imagine that like the whole room is a blue light Jackson Pollock painting and you just wipe everything down and um, and you socially distance. And so it was great. The weird thing is the highways are still pretty full. I mean, really, you don't have like bumper to bumper traffic, but there are people out there and um, and all the restaurants, they're all like drive up curbside stuff and mm -hmm. so it's a little creepy it's a little weird but it's also a beautiful country and um it was a great way to spend forced time with your family and make a memory you know which is kind of important so yeah and make no apologies if that's what you're looking for <laughs> absolutely not no i'm i'm super jealous to go anywhere beyond like a block and a half of uh, my brooklyn neighborhood at this point so well i mean it just yeah. do you have a car no no it was stolen oh, that's a problem New Jersey hooligans uh, a couple of years ago yeah. out in front of my house. Okay. Well, that that's a problem then because I, one of the things that keeps me sane in all this is just driving someplace around DC, parking and working there. You just mm. feel being outside helps psychologically a lot, you know? Well, I mean, the, the president today, right. Said that uh, we all need to go outside more or at least uh, stay inside and, and inject ultraviolet rays into our, assholes is that what he said uh, was that the direct quote I, I was unclear i didn't see the whole yeah no close i mean I, I probably should have briefed you a little more carefully um uh no but he he did say that he had just been briefed and it turns out this is something that uh, and you guys have been reading enough about this stuff you know that sunlight is supposed to have a you know negative effect on the virus and that fresh mm -hmm. air you know th these things have been known to science for a long time but they were new to trump and he came out and touted it as if these were these amazing findings yeah, not and, a lot of people know this. Not a lot of people right, know this. Yeah, no, it's like you won't believe you heard this because he doesn't believe he heard it, right? And um, and then he said, I mean, by the time this airs, people have heard this a thousand times and it will be like a walking Saturday Night Live skit. But he said that, you know, and he he, he kind of grilled Burks and and this guy from this this lab about whether or not it would work to whether or not they should look into injecting bleach <laughs> to clean out the virus. Oh my or, God. Um, because ultraviolet light is so powerfully, you know, he always uses, he only has two major adjectives. It's powerfully or strongly. Yeah. Yes. And so ultraviolet light so strongly hurts the virus <laughs> that maybe we should figure out a way, not just to put it on the skin, but maybe inside the body. Right. And it was kind of the medical equivalent of that scene from Zoolander where he goes, the files are inside the computer, right? He doesn't like understand like what medicine is. And he actually asked Burks, has anybody thought about doing this? Yeah. As if he had like had this 
epiphany that never occurred to anybody about injecting bleach. Yeah. And uh, it was amazing. It was kind of an amazing moment. And I, I joked about it on Twitter. I kind of feel like we are only maybe two, three calendar days from him straight up telling people to ingest Tide Pods. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> Once or for all. doing it, you know, the suppository way that Matt seems fixated yeah, on. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> no kink shaming. He's, he's got a thing for butts. It's fine. There's no judgment here. Um, <laughs> well, Jonah, it, I, I know one of the things that Matt is very eager to talk to you about is the journey that you've taken over the course of the the past couple of years. And mm-hmm. when when Matt and I were doing, you know, our extensive pregame preparation for this, because we we do so much preparation it's to like make sweat this podcast all that it is. And, you know, uh, yeah, there's a lot. Grease um, boards, interns <laughs> banging on typewriters. You know, exactly. Kind of, yeah. Um, I was I was going back and and looking at um liberal fascism and suicide of the West and thinking about wow, that is an interesting continuum. How do you get from there to there? I, I wonder if you could talk about that journey for us. And Matt, this is something that you uh inspired me to ask. So it may be that you have some framing that is superior to what i just offered i would never say it was superior but uh as much as anything else like when i go back jonah and look at the uh against trump issue of national review which was like january or february of 2016 if i'm remembering it correctly is right before the iowa caucus super interesting as a opinion journalism publishing milestone in ways that i think are not still not fully appreciated although people who pay attention or paying attention. I mean, I think National Review took a hit, like mm-hmm. uh, among its base. Um, some of its funders, certainly some of its subscribers, like had problems with like, you're going against the person who's about to win the nomination of the party that you're most associated with. And I've always been most associated with. I had occasion to go back and read highlights of that, uh, like uh, a few months back. And it's kind of interesting. I don't know, I don't know when's the last time you looked at it, but like, about one third of the participants, and they weren't all National Review uh, uh, people, to be sure. I mean, yeah, no, m- most National Review people, we let the editorial speak for us. So most of the contributors are outside people. Yeah, and we wanted to get a coalition of people from across the conservative pantheon. and, like you know, David Bowes from the Cato Institute was in there. There's a lot of people, Brent Bozell yeah. and such. But like a third of the contributors there have gone full Trump <laughs> since oh, yeah. then, yeah. which is <laughs> remarkable. Um, I, I saw, I think it was. The reference was you. There's an insane cartoonist, political cartoonist um, whose name escapes me, but uh, had a, a piece up a couple of days ago that was being passed around Twitter. And there was a, a, a character that kind of looked like you that had the name Goldberg on it. And there's other. Oh, yeah. No, it was, was me. Yeah, 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 it was definitely um, into me. Yeah, I have yeah. no idea what that was all about. I just kind of uh, presume that it's anti-Semitic or I don't know what the hell that he was coming up with. Yeah. Uh, but it's just crazy is, is, is one mm-hmm. point. Um, but like. uh uh, so you have your own kind of journey from 2016 to now that is uh, represented at the dispatch. But like you also can't help but observe the journeys or lack thereof taken of the commentariat right. And this yeah. is what I'm fascinated with. And also like how so you as someone who has um, were comfortably um, uh, and I don't mean this in, in a pejorative sense at all, but like you were within a um, kind of a major ideological identifiable place that mm-hmm. you were, you had mm-hmm. a home. 
Yeah. <laughs> you be- yeah, yeah, you yeah. became no, homeless. So, so that's what I'm interested yes. in, in hearing your perspective on. Um, sure. I, so I, I can go on autopilot about yeah. this. So you guys just need to stop exactly. me. But um, <laughs> we won't. Uh, so first of all, just uh, just some cleanup work. The against Trump issue, which I was one of the major people pushing for internally at the magazine. Uh, it was Rich's, Rich Lowry's decision to wait until right before the Iowa caucuses, which were the first caucuses. So Trump wasn't about to win. Pretty much everyone still thought he was kind, not everyone, but a lot of people thought he was a joke who would lose. And um, and part of the role historically in National Review is to play those kinds, I don't mean games in a in a belittling sense, but that's the game of politics is you want your, you want your endorsement or your editorial to have the maximum impact and waiting right before you vote in the past, it was the best way to do it. You know, we did a similar thing with Newt in 2012 and, um, and that was a fascinating learning experience for me, just the reaction to that. So one of my larger meta explanations for why we can't have nice things <laughs> is that, um, uh, partisanship in America is argu- has arguably, you know, put aside the pandemic, right? As of six weeks ago, there have been times in America that have been more polarized. Um, uh, and there have been times in it, the civil war was pretty polarized on. Right? Sure. And there have been times when we've been as partisan to a certain extent, um, 1960s, that kind of thing. But the parties have never been weaker. And there are a whole bunch of political scientists who've done some amazing stuff about all this stuff. Part of the reasons why things are so partisan now is precisely because the parties are weak, not because they're strong. Mm. And what has happened is that people have internalized partisanship and there's no bigger institution that can regulate partisanship and get keep people in line. Instead, people become more passionate about politics because politics has become either sort of it maps very much like a religion or a lifestyle and that kind of stuff. And it used to be, you know, 50 years ago, if I asked you if you were a Republican or a Democrat, I would have to ask you a follow-up question to find out if you were a liberal or conservative, because there were liberal Republicans and there were conservative Democrats and it was much more mixed. Now, partisanship basically is a, a form of identity in a lot of ways for a lot of people, and that's messed up. And so one of the byproducts of this over the last 30, 40 years is a whole bunch of institutions have filled the vacuum that the parties have abandoned and they're doing party work without realizing it. There are an enormous number, you know, take an easy example, the NRA and Planned Parenthood, whatever you think of the positions that they hold, they probably do more voter education and voter mobilization than a lot of state parties do. And, um, And so therefore they kind of become they're, they no longer have to do what Madison wanted party uh, members of a party to do, which is make compromises internally in the coalition. And they ask for 100% of their position rather than like 70% of their position. Something similar has happened with conservative and liberal media. Um, libertarian media, for interesting reasons, it's much smaller, but it's also immune in a lot of ways from this. Um, but, you know, MSNBC does party work. Fox News does party work. They they frame issues. They do opposition research. They do all sorts of things that you'd expect a party to do. And anyway, the long and short of it is the thing I didn't appreciate in 2016 was that an enormous number of people um, 
on the right think that when push comes to shove, when they actually have to make a decision about what their primary purpose is, they're more party people than anything else, right? I mean, like the way I put it a lot on my podcast is in my life, I've worn a lot of hats. I write egghead books. I do red meat speeches. I do sort of straight punditry speeches. I do Fox News. I write a syndicated column. I do a bunch of different things. And there was never much of a conflict between all of these things. And then lo and old comes, and, and, and part of one of the things I did was I was a party guy. I never really thought I was like sacrificing much to say I was for Bush against Gary or whatever and all that kind of stuff. And I did sort of party work in my columns to a certain extent, but there was no contradiction with my, what I thought was my professional integrity or any of that, that kind of stuff. Then 2016 comes along or really 2015 comes along and, you know, and, and Cheeto Jesus arrives on the scene. <laughs> and you all of a sudden have a bunch of people who are forced to choose. And, and what is the one hat I am not going to take off? And a shocking number of them, by my lights, said the one hat they're not going to take off is the party hat. And they cared more about being partisan and part of a team than standing up for stuff that they believed for a very long time, whether it was the importance of character or the importance of just frigging knowing what you're talking about or a hundred different things. and. So, I mean, I totally understand why you're asking this question in terms of my journey, but the way I kind of feel more often is that I'm standing firmly in place and this vast sea of humanity is freaking zigzagging around me, around me, going in different directions because they are trying to calibrate all of their positions based upon what Trump says and trying to defend Trump the man and whatever the hell they think Trumpism is. and so. I've never been more ideologically grounded, but I've never been more politically homeless. Right. And uh, that's a weird thing. And it was really astounding to me how, um, you know, unlike, say, Max Boot or Jen Rubin, I really haven't changed very many of any of my positions on things. Mm -hmm. um, but there are an enormous number of people who thought that. Okay, fine for, you know, during the primaries, you have your choices, you don't like this guy, whatever, but now you just have to get on board and rally around the president because that's your job. I would tell you, it's not my freaking job. I, you know, I, I don't work for the RNC. And I was amazed to watch how many people would say one thing when the light on the camera was on in a Fox News studio and another thing when the light was off. I don't believe a lot. I think a lot of journalism, journalistic ethics stuff is like, BS guild stuff from the Columbia journalism school, but yes. something I actually believe kind of passionately in is don't lie. Don't <laughs> actually say things you don't believe to be true. And it was an astonishing number of people who would say this guy was a, a pig and an ignoramus and all these kinds of things. He doesn't know what the constitution is. And then the camera goes on and they're like, our, our brave and, you know, resolute defender of the Constitution gave a powerful speech there. I was like, what? You know, why aren't you dodging lightning bolts right now? And so just to bring it back to the to full circle, you asked about the against Trump issue, which people remember as a never Trump issue. Never Trump didn't exist then, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. it, was, it wasn't even a hashtag then. Um, what we were doing was endorsing the field against Trump, in effect. We were saying anybody but Trump is a defensible vote. And I was stunned by the cheap populist BS from news people on Fox, from radio hosts. You can fill in the names. Um, 
We're like, who does National Review think it is to tell voters how to vote? That's what we've been doing for 65 years, <laughs> right? We've been, that's, that's, that's like core to what we, we've been endorsing people, not endorsing people. That is what we do. We are this tiny, we were this tiny little magazine and we had outside influence because we were trying to police the right. And Lord knows National Review made mistakes in that process and all the rest. But this idea that somehow National Review had no standing to tell people how to vote was bizarre, but it shows you just how much that sort of party function populism bullshit had been internalized by so many people. Well, there's the there's the one lesson to learn with that is that I can't believe so many people were so unprincipled or like that. And I'm putting words in your mouth that you didn't say, but like, mm-hmm. uh, but like they wore a different hat in your formulation. Yeah. Um. But there, there's another uh, 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 possible interpretation that I struggle with personally, which is that, and I'm much. Obviously, I, my teams never win anything um, except for the Angels in 2002. Um, and, and that was a fluke even then. But like, uh, which is that the role of ideas and like philosophy and policies in politics, we had been because we were, you know, tasting our own supply. We had been exaggerating that by a factor of five, maybe 10, maybe 50. Yeah, that's, um, that's not what was motivating very many people at all to vote. Um, how 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 did that smack you in the face, or what is your relationship with that kind of conundrum? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with that to a certain extent, but I also think that, um, you know, there's this good book out. You'd be interested in it. There's a book out uh, called "Never Trump: Revolt of the Conservative Elites" by this guy Stephen Tellas and uh, a guy named Saldine from the University yeah. of Montana, I think, and he interviewed like. 35 people who are in on all of this stuff. And um, uh, anyway, it, it's worth looking at, but the, the, the larger point or to, to actually answer your question, as I was trying to contemplate how I get more whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> we'll give you space. Hey, man. <laughs> Hi everybody. So morning. <laughs> Look at that. You're getting whiskey and I'm, uh, I just brought oh, the palinka out, Matt. Um, Walked into the door and right into the Hungarian booze. So nice. Jonah Goldberg is no stranger to the Palinka, is what I'm going to tell you right now. Um, uh, <laughs> that's, that's actually true. Um, but um, I, I, look, I, I think that, you know, oh, so that's, that's what made me think of the book is they have this sort of running metaphor about how there were the populist yahoos who always existed on the right, but they were sort of the monster in the basement that you kind of let out a little bit around election time and all that kind of stuff. And I think there's obviously some truth to that. But I also think that there was a kind of psychic break that happened with the treatment of the tea parties. Um, and, uh, and I also, th- I also think, I mean, the, of the things I underestimated, the, the, the racial component about Obama, I probably underestimated pretty significantly in, in, during his administration. But I think that um, we also sort of didn't really appreciate there's a long history of of populist movements having this very long tail after financial crises and in 2000 the 2007 2008 financial crisis i think changed the nature of the base in certain ways mm-hmm. i also think that um one of the major problems we have as a culture forget the right for a second is that we have been following this is a big point in suicide of the west is that we follow politics as if it's a form of entertainment yeah. 
And the more you follow stuff as a form of entertainment, the weirder things go on in your brain. I mean, the point I often make is that in movies and TV shows, as once someone is established as the hero, it doesn't matter how evil they are. You still root for them. And so, you know, you can, as, as long as you're the protagonist or the antihero, whatever it is, if you're the guy that people are rooting for, you can murder people, you can punch people in the face for no reason. Hannibal Lecter ate people. Right? <laughs> and, and then they made a TV series for three years where he was basically the hero. Um, and when you follow politics as, um, as a form of entertainment, you start, all you start doing is thinking, I want my guy to win. My guy's victory is the MacGuffin, you know, that drives the plot. And, um, and you don't really care about the ideas or the issues. And I think that problem has gotten worse in our politics, but yeah, I'm totally open to the idea that I misread a lot of things and I miss a lot of misread a lot of close friends, um, including a lot of my fans who were so angry at me for not living down to their expectations and becoming a serviceable party hack um, once it was clear that Trump was going to be, you know, the nominee. Jonah, is it, are you able to name names in the sense of that I've talked to a lot of people about this who have lost friends, um, quite a few friends uh, over the past uh, four years, say three, four years. Um, are there people that have really disappointed you that's um, just materialized in the White House or as, as kind of, you know, handmaidens of the Trump administration that, that you were like, well, that one is actually quite, quite strange. Well, I mean, I mean, there's some I don't want to completely throw salt in the wounds by going too deep into the details. But I mean, early ones, I mean, of political figures, it's pretty easy. My wife worked for Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich is a brilliant guy. Newt Gingrich came to the conclusion that he could, he should, it was in his interest to completely throw away his entire legacy, say, you know, he's the guy who got NAFTA passed. And then all of a sudden he's like, NAFTA was a mistake. NAFTA's garbage. He was the guy who pushed more than anybody for the expansion of NATO. He was like, yeah, that was a huge mistake. You know, we, you know, the, the, the Baltics are basically the suburbs of St. Petersburg. We never should have done that. Um, one thing after another, he just had a fire sale on his own legacy just so he could have one last taste of power. Um, there are a bunch of people in the sort of, uh, you know, uh, Claire monster world that I, I just don't get. I mean, I just literally don't understand how you can be talking about the importance of statesmanship as the, the sine qua non of, of all politics and how uh, fidelity to constitutional principles is you know, the most important thing of all things. And then talk about the heroic leadership of a guy who says he'll protect article 12 of the constitution. Um, you know, Bill Bennett, it pains me to say this because Bill Bennett really wasn't, and as far as I'm concerned, he still is a close friend of mine. You know, if he called me and said he needed something for whatever reason, I wouldn't let our political differences get in the way of being a friend. But at the same time, his behavior during this, I find unfathomable. And profoundly disappointing, not just in the, the recent stuff with COVID, but, you know, go go to Amazon and just look at the titles of all the books that <laughs> yeah. he has his name on. And the idea the book of that oh, the book of virtues, <laughs> the death of outrage. Um, I was just reading this piece that uh, a friend of mine sent me about that he wrote about Terry Shavo. And I was like, I, I'm thinking about writing a piece about, you know, um, what if Terry Shavo got COVID-19? because He's doing all of this constitutional, you know, you know, gymnastics to say that we need to protect the life of this one woman in Florida. 
but he now is going on TV talking about how, you know, there are acceptable numbers of deaths um, in the thousands because of this thing. And it's just not the Thomas Moore kind of rhetoric that I got used to from Bill Bennett. I saw him on um, on Fox on Martha McCallum's show six months ago, eight months ago. And Trump had, I know you find this hard to believe, but Trump had said something weird. And she asked Bill for his response to it. and and. He said, well, look, there are certain things we know about, you know, uh, the president. He doesn't do this. He doesn't. He does not prevaricate. <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I write words for a living. You know, that's like what I do. And I was like, I had this momentary flop sweat panic that I didn't know what prevaricate. I've like, been using it wrong for 20 years. Is there some other meaning to that word? And I looked at it. I was like, oh, it just means lie. And I thought that's what it meant, you know. And. There are all of these kinds of things. Um, there are, I mean, most of the people in talk radio are, are, are disappointments to me to one extent or another. I mean, I, I, that's a medium that I think is fraught for all sorts of reasons. Um, but it's been, you know, I mean, there are lots of people who, I mean, I know who hate my guts. There are former colleagues of mine at National Review. I got to say, I want to be careful about this. No one who works at National Review and like gets a paycheck. Do I have? Um, anything but esteem for, and they've been great to me, and and I will not say a bad word about them, except for Cat Town. Um, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, well, um, but I have my disagreements with some people, and that's all fine. But I, I I generally think that they've kept their their integrity intact, even if I'll disagree with one or the other thing. But there are other people in the orbit of National Review, um, which I who I will not name because I don't want to get National Review in trouble, who I've lost all respect. Um, and there are people in the donor class that I've lost all respect for. Um, and uh, do you, do you think just, that they've, is, they've actually, you know, as you say with Newt Gingrich, it's the last, you know, gasp and he can hang on to a little bit of power. I mean, that presumes that it's the stuff before that he actually believed. And that's the case mm -hmm. with a lot of these people. I mean, is that the case? Is it that they never believed anything or that they actually had their principles? Because I see some of these people, you know, Heritage Foundation types, um, even some AEI types that you're like, wait, wait a second. You know, I mean, it's obvious that the Stephen Moores and Larry Kudlow's and these people who are free traders and all of a sudden are, you know, in front of a lectern saying this stuff is, uh, has been destroying the American economy for years. And I'm like, that can't be the same person. He's going to take the mask off at some point. But, you know, those guys were pretty, they were, they had one issue, like more in particular in Kudlow. And so that I think they, they, they're obviously sucking up to power. But a lot of these other people, I just don't know if they ever believed anything. And it was well, like I, kind of they had a broad sense of what what conservatism was. And they knew they were on that side and liberalism repulsed them. But they weren't, of course, people. And it was disappointing to find out that they weren't reading, you know, Hayek or something and saying this is the kind of principles of conservatism or even, you know, Russell Kirk or n none of it. It just seemed to have all evaporated. And I started wondering if they ever believed anything at all. Yeah. So I, I have a slightly different take on it. Um, uh, I will. I will not leap to the defense of your statements about Stephen Moore, uh, <laughs> but uh, Cudlow, I have a slightly different feelings about. It. I like I like Larry a lot personally, and and um, I think he's behaved better than Stephen Moore mm -hmm. has. Uh, I mean, the last straw for me was just in the last week where he's he's literally comparing these yachts with the AK forty sevens and the Confederate flags and the and the Gadsden flags, protesting, um, you know quarantines to Rosa Parks. 
And I just, I don't, <laughs> that, there, are, you, there are too many leaps to get across that canyon. Um, Jennifer, for a second, and, I was wondering, like, wait, do I, is Rosa Parks somebody different? Was that, you know, like, <laughs> does Prevergate mean what it means? Was, is, Rosa Parks, is there another Rosa Parks, you know? Um, and more, more Claudette Colvin than Rosa Parks, perhaps. <laughs> and so, uh, but I, I think, you know, so one of the more interesting things, um, you know, and I don't know if you guys have a similar experience, but in part because of the stuff I'm doing now, I talk to a lot more politicians than I used to. I, I have tried most of my life to avoid getting too attached to politicians, but I've talked to a lot of politicians, Republican politicians in the last six months. And the stuff that they say on camera versus the stuff that they say in private is astoundingly different. Hmm. And a lot of them have this sort of like Trump is their COVID-19. We are just going to shelter in place <laughs> and ride this thing out. And they think that when it's all over, I mean, and, I mean, like I'm not, a, it's not, I, I'm open to the idea that some of them are telling me the things that I want to hear, but I know enough other people mm. who hear the same things from the same people that I think they've convinced themselves of a lot of this. They think that once Trump is off the stage, they will go back to some version of Reaganism without paying too much of a price. And um, I think a lot of these people actually do believe a lot of this stuff. Um, not all of them, to be sure. Um, but they care more about getting reelected. I mean, and so the structural change that is the most illuminating is that it used to be for all of our lives until fairly recently, the, the center of the country determined who would get elected, right? You ran to the base, you got, you know, you got just enough of the base to win a primary. And then you ran to the center and you got the uh, median plus one voter and, and you got elected. The structural changes to our, our political landscape are such now that the power of incumbency is so good or so strong that once you get the nomination, so long as you don't piss off the base, you get reelected in like nine out of 10 of these or 99 out of 100 of these positions. And so the incentive to just not piss off Trump and say what you need to say to not piss off his voters is very, very strong. But I guarantee you that, you know, uh, you know Lamar Alexander might not be the kind of conservative I am, but he actually believes in the stuff he believes in still. He's just not going to pick fights with Donald Trump. And the same goes for a lot of these people. Ben Sass, you know, the 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 need to get elected causes politicians to do and say things that annoy people like me. But that doesn't mean none of them believe things. Newt Gingrich is another matter because Newt Gingrich has that sort of autofillating intellectual capacity of convincing himself of anything that he wants to convince himself of and he can talk himself into anything. But a lot of these guys, they're not intellectuals. They just want to get reelected and they want to have their their victories where they can. I wonder, Jonah, if I could ask you a question and, and I, I would love to get your perspective on some of the various current events that are going on as well. So this is a two part question that maybe takes us in that direction. First is before the pandemic, what was your assessment of the Trump administration? Was it as miserable and awful as you imagined it could be? Were there perhaps a, a few more surprising 
points at which you found yourself saying, okay, it's, it's not a total debacle. And how has the current mess changed your perspective? As of January 1, let's say, um, I would say that there were, there were certain things I got wrong. I just got wrong. I thought that there was a far greater risk that Trump, because he doesn't care about principles or ideas. Yeah. Once elected, he would, you know, he's a real estate developer. He's a shady real estate developer from New York. He would cut deals with Democrats. Those are the people he understands. They're, you know, Schumer's from New York. He knows these people. I thought he was going to, he was far more likely to sell out Republicans. Mm -hmm. But what I didn't appreciate was the degree to which, the degree to which he is incapable of resisting people who heap praise on him. That's right. And, and getting furious with people who criticize him. And so he got boxed in. I mean, he gave that, Moynihan will remember who the person, Who's the line from years ago, you know, um, I think about Buchanan's culture comp speech, but it was like, oh, yeah. it was better than the original German. <laughs> yeah. If, yeah, that was if, said by a number of people, I think by me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, if, if Trump's inauguration address hadn't gone the way it was, it was like written to piss off Democrats yeah. and it was really <laughs> dumb and shows why Bannon is, was such a malevolent force. But um, so there are some things that I was very Pleasantly, pleasantly surprised is the wrong word, but I, mm-hmm. I'll give him credit. I like most of the judges. You know, I like those Supreme mm-hmm. Court picks, to be sure. Um, uh, a lot of the deregulatory stuff I very much favored. Um, I There are lots of, you know, I think that Mitch McConnell deserves, and, and even Speaker Ryan, you know, deserve far more credit for the good things the Trump administration did than Trump does. But we give credit to the guy who's president and that's fine. So there were a lot of things that were better than I anticipated. Mm-hmm. The downside is, is I think he's done permanent, permanent damage before COVID-19 permanent damage to the Republican brand, to the conservative brand. Um, he has set fire to the credibility of a whole generation of Republican politicians and conservative journalists. Um, some of them will recover. Because they'll recover. And um, my predictions about my long-term prospects are not necessarily all that optimistic because the machinery rewards people who played the played ball versus people like me. And this is one of the things that drives me into a, I'll take out your eye with a ballpoint pen rage. When people say that my position on Trump is to get rich or because <laughs> yeah. I'm bought and paid for. Yeah. I, I don't want to do woe is me. I'm doing fine, but I guarantee you I've lost tens of thousands, if not more dollars because of my position on, on Donald Trump. I, the people who have, who are best positioned to monetize Trump are the pro Trump people. Hmm. But so anyway, there's, there's that. And, um, and, and I think he's done enormous damage to the country. You know, I mean, I, I, and, uh, I'm someone who's been consistent. I thought Bill Clinton was a pig and a bad a man of bad character for doing things that, you know, Donald Trump has done in his life. And I, I have a consistent position on this. And um, and the number of people who have just now completely forfeited the notion that character matters in the White House, the character matters in politicians. It's It's now the party line on the right in a way that I think will have lasting problems. For the culture since the COVID-19 thing, um, since the pandemic, I think 
he's just demonstrated the the one of the things that we said from the beginning is he's just way out of his depth. Hmm. This is, you know, one of the problems I have is I'm not a resistance guy, right? I'm not, you know, I don't think Trump is Hitler. My standard line is he's not Hitler. Hitler could have repealed Obamacare. Um, but uh um, i just want to take that out of context and use that as like the bumper like hitler could have repealed obamacare and then it's like like, jonah's really changed hitler Hitler 2020 Uh, in fairness it's funny because it's true (laughs) Um, but um oh god uh he's 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 not a smart person. I mean, and he's not, I mean, he's got a very powerful and impressive lizard brain um, that lets him focus on weaknesses of people and mock people. And I look around, I mean, here's a test to see how corrupting Donald Trump has been. Just look for the number of conservative intellectual types who now start, or not even intellectual, just journalists, who now start using stupid nicknames for Democrats, That's true. Mm-hmm. sleepy yeah. Joe and you know, mm-hmm. awful this and whatever, you know, they've internal, they, they've, they're dumbing themselves down to fit Trump's model. And, um, that stuff is just, just, just disgusting to me. And, uh, I think Trump has behaved abysmally during the pandemic. Um, I think that, that the people who are defending his position make no sense. And um, that doesn't mean everything he did was bad. I have no problem with the China travel ban. I just don't think it was strong enough. And I have a problem that he didn't take advantage of the time he allegedly bought America by doing anything in February. Mm-hmm. Um, he's 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 an ignoramus. And um, the effort to pretend that he is not is what is so corrupting. Yeah. That two two things. One, I I was totally with you on the expectation that Trump's lack of principles would almost certainly result in a great many deals being struck with the Democrats. I think your your analysis is right. I think on the other side, though, I underestimated the level of contempt that people have for him. And the degree to which they would get in their own way and prevent themselves from being able to make those deals. I mean, the 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 fact that they were able to actually extract the first step to act from him, um, largely as a result, I think, of Kim Kardashian's remarkable, legendary and laudable work. Uh, and none none so of that much. is sarcasm. It, no, none of that is sarcasm. So it's amazing. She, I mean, seriously, it's America's, <laughs> okay, I, I, America's I, I, first family I, I, there. I want I, I don't want to make fun of that position. All I'm going to say, though, and this is not a slight at all on Kim Kardashian. You be careful. But I guarantee you, while whatever argument she was making to Donald Trump, the persuasiveness of her argument had less to do with the words that were coming out yes. of her mouth. <laughs> of course, <laughs> which, is, which is, which actually, which underscores my point. Democrats could have gotten a lot more out no, of absolutely. Donald Trump. I agree with that. Yeah, had yeah, yeah. they been willing to try to contain their revulsion well, and just arguably play ball with the guy. Arguably Camille, but, and, and I haven't gotten in the weeds of this, so I'm speaking of ignorance. We've just sent how many, trillions of dollars out of well, this <laughs> i think it's the, he's proving it. it's 2.8 yeah, yeah. trillion almost now yeah. and counting out the door although it's not like necessarily everything that's wish casted uh the democratic party we have never yeah. seen a spending um 
uh, orgy, the likes of which we've seen the last three weeks in Washington ever. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, to Jenna's the, point, too, is that I find that, yeah, on, particularly on this show when we talk about this, is that we are often not talking about Donald Trump himself, but talking about people who are talking about Donald Trump. That takes up a lot of our time. And That's because true. Twitter and because the Washington Press Corps, I mean, like, obviously, we you can you can take your eye off the box. It becomes so normal in a way, so abnormally normal that what Donald Trump does at these pressers and but but it's pretty amazing to us that we expect that from him. But then the Washington, you know, media is uh, having their moment, right? They're having their grandstanding moment where they say, oh, no, it's my turn to have my Jim Acosta like fight with Donald Trump. And it gets Twitter traffic. And it's very easy to get upset about that. So I'm not upset about it, but just saying, you know, guys, calm down a little bit. It's a bit silly. Yeah. But uh, but but Trump, we've expected it. And I think that we always I always used to point out, like, does anyone remember when he tried to buy Greenland? This is how crazy <laughs> the man is. We forget. Like, I was, this would have been something that I, I, like, so I just drove back from DC. I just literally just got in minutes ago, 10 minutes ago. And I saw on Twitter right before I was getting out of the car, because I hadn't, I'd been on the hill all day. He, there's something about a press conference of him saying, can you sort of, you know, shoot yourself with bleach or something. Was this? A, yeah, no, we covered this. You covered, this. Okay. We covered that. So yeah. that will be forgotten about. I don't even know the details. I just know that it's insane, but it will be forgotten about in a month <laughs> and, or two weeks or one week and not even because of COVID. Several, because several if, days. I mean, several remember days. when he, I mean, remember the, the map when he went on like an eight day uh, campaign of saying that this, what was it? The hurricane that Some could hurricane, reach Alabama yeah. was going to reach <laughs> Alabama. Yeah. What are you talking about? Like this is when I get, when I become Jeff Garland. What is crazy? <laughs> like we've totally <laughs> forgotten about this stuff because it's been it's so abnormal that it's that it's just normalized. And I end up say, I, saying like you know it's like the George uh, W. Bush stuff. Um, you know, people calling him Hitler. It was like I I don't even think that I ever wrote anything about George W. Bush's actual policies because <laughs> I was so obsessed with how crazy he made people. And Trump, yeah. you know, is making people far crazier, but he's also mm -hmm. acting far crazier. But I tend to forget or not forget. I mean, I'm, I'm aware of it, but I tend to pay less attention to because all these people go mad on Twitter yeah, and I so had to get off of Twitter. That's the other thing. But well, that was that was the <laughs> second that was the second thing that I was going to say. Like, I, I, I most certainly like I think that's common amongst us on the podcast yeah, at times, sure. almost certainly less less so of Matt. But Definitely. but I do know for Matter. myself, like Trump Trump punching, like just doesn't actually fill me with a great deal of glee. Sometimes it feels like picking on a kid, mm -hmm. um, and and I think part of it is because the the things that people imagine make Trump profoundly dangerous. I think the fact that he's so much Elmer Fudd. And that it is so difficult for him to actually get things done that when people panic about him being a, a fascist dictator who has a tendency towards, I, I don't know, the, the ugliest. You're going to say racially sort of coded, is what you're going to say. Authoritarian <laughs> sort of things. No, the, the race, the race, the race stuff I'm going to set aside. Say I'm it. saying, no, the race stuff I set aside because that's a whole different conversation that yeah. I, I just don't even want to, I don't want to. I don't want to spin that up, but the, the tendency towards the authoritarian, perhaps he may have that in him. He doesn't have the rest of what you need to actually become that person. In no, an I think that is, way. I think that is exactly right. He's lazy. Mm. Right? <laughs> he, he very much would like to be an authoritarian. Right. And he always does these things where he tests, you know, the audience 
where you'll he'll say something crazy and they're just oh I'm just joking. But what he's doing is he's like seeing what he can get away with. You can tell that he likes the idea of being president for life. He likes the idea of being oh, yeah. having total authority. He's just not willing to do the homework. It is just <laughs> like it turns out it takes work to be a strong man. You have yeah. to know how to like <laughs> marshal forces and anticipate things. He can't get his own friggin' loyalist like Corey Lewandowski to do with like simple henchmen work. Yeah. The dudes from the old 1960s Batman henchman. with like henchmen written on their chest <laughs> were better henchmen than this guy, right? But um, I, I got to pick a fight briefly with Moynihan about something. Sure. Though. Um, uh, first of all, I'll save the more important one for a second. I, I agree with you that it's distracting to, to talk that the, the asininity of the media and their criticisms about Trump is very distracting, and there is lots of merit to that criticism. Jim Acosta beclowns himself regularly. I stipulate it. My concern is, is that anti-anti-Trumpism is the gateway drug to pro-Trumpism. Yes. And I can tell you I've seen it all the time, where people start by just saying, look, it's not that I like Trump. It just The people who are going after Trump are so stupid and blah, blah, blah. And then within a very short period of time, you're talking about how Comrade Trump will deliver the greatest weed harvest east of the world we've ever seen. 100%. Okay, so you got to be careful. I totally okay? agree. Yeah, yeah. Second of all, I will defend on a whole other podcast till I'm blue in the face the peaceful annexation of Greenland. <laughs> <laughs> I My problem with, with the Greenland thing is the complete opposite of yours. Uh, yeah. It's a good idea, right? <laughs> the General problem is, is a good idea. <laughs> okay, I'll get to that in a second. The problem with it is that the second Trump embraced it, it discredited it for a generation or 10 so generations. So you were an right? early proponent of, of taking was. possession of Greenland. Yes. Not well, yeah, peacefully. 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 Yes. I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to. Greenland wants to bomb it, Canada. Let's be yeah. clear about that. So who are the, yeah, the, so who are the Danzig only Germans of, of Greenland <laughs> that you're going to protect? The Sudeten Germans. Who's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, going to show up in Greenland? There's like one Goldberg. If you talk to the defense types, there's all sorts of stuff in terms of monitoring Russian subs about all sorts of stuff. The gateways of the Arctic, all the rare earth minerals that they think mm. they have in Greenland. If global warming or climate change is is a tenth as true as the alarmists say, it is going to be prime, wonderful summer weather up there. There's all sorts of reasons to do it. But the reason I bring it up is that, yeah, it was always sort of a half-baked idea. Me and Mike Gallagher, this congressman, we talked about it at length on a podcast before Trump brought it up. The, the problem is, is that the second Trump embraces an idea, even a good idea, he is such a poor salesman of it. Yeah. That he discredits it. And so all my nationalist friends, the second that Trump said he was um, not a conservative, he was a nationalist. I was like, ha ha, have fun with that. Yeah. Because he is the worst spokesman. Not meaning he's not the, I mean, like Hugo Chavez is probably a worst spokesman. But, you know, in American context, to sell nationalism to people who already haven't bought it, terrible. And, yeah. you know, so Michael Brennan Doherty, who's a friend of mine, Rich Lowry is a friend of mine. They have these theories about nationalism. I think they're wrong, but I think they're sincere and and they're not stupid. And the second Trump embraces that stuff, turn, he has a reverse Midas touch, turns it all to fecal matter. 
I, I wonder if either of those guys um, uh, would be talking about nationalism if it weren't for Donald Trump. I mean, Michael, maybe. Mm. I mean, Rich, Rich I don't know. I mean, well, no, Michael would be because yeah. he's more of an Irish nationalist than an American I, nationalist. Well, he's a Shinner. <laughs> I mean, he. I, I try to explain to him that, you know, Sinn Féin is like 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 12 degrees to the left of Bernie Sanders. And it just doesn't matter because the <laughs> Irish blood supersedes everything. But the one thing about Trump is I think that what it demonstrates is that um you know, I thought for a while that Trump was going to run a freight train through D.C. I mean, both uh, both houses, Supreme Court picks, et cetera. And I just realized that the robustness of the American system, this is why you can't be Viktor Orban. I mean, the Hungarian system is as new as 1989, and it's been being modified all the time. It has some sort of roots in in, in pre-war Hungarian politics, unfortunately. But um, but you can do that sort of thing, right? I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I'm like, let's change the Constitution. and But you can't do that here. So Trump, I mean, I think Trump, mm-hmm. as dumb as he is and as incompetent as he is, in another country, in a Venezuela, he'd probably get a lot more done because he has some henchmen that are are pretty yeah. good henchmen. And that's the sort of Stephen Miller types. Um, mm. But but I, I wonder, like, I mean, you know, Trump says, well, I, I, I rule. I make the decisions. And it's like, no, you don't. And no matter yeah. how many times you say that, it's not going to be true. So yeah, yeah, end yeah. of conversation, no, you know. I, yeah. I might I might buy that. I might buy that argument, although this particular moment in a national emergency, in fact, a global emergency, if you have the right sort of person, if they're sufficiently sophisticated, um, I imagine they could run the traps pretty deftly. Um, people are clamoring for a strong man to save them, to take yeah. over everything, to nationalize everything, to send the troops into Manhattan. That is true. That is true. Like right now is a different. Yeah, uh, look, yeah. here's my anti-anti-Trumpism. So, so in some respects, one one wonders if it's not if it's not a virtue to have a a, a Donald Trump. And and actually, can I can I push back quickly? Because I sure. I just want to start a fight. Um, you're, you're in favor of Greenland's autonomy? <laughs> no, not that. I, I won't even argue on that point. The, the way that so many people, I think, debase themselves with ridiculous criticisms of Donald Trump, the likening him to Hitler, et cetera, that, that kind of over-the-top stuff, the generating controversies where there, there really isn't one, imagining they see like boogeymen everywhere, the, the Russiagate insanity that gripped the country um, for the first several years of this administration, and in many respects, still haunts people. And even more recently, in the midst of the pandemic, the the way the the press corps in the White House debased themselves, where for weeks they'd been clamoring for the president to just take action and shut down states that wouldn't shut themselves down, and then turned on a dime to castigate the president for suggesting he had all of the power. There is a there is a hysterical absurdity to the opposition to Donald Trump that I think is actually, in many respects, a great deal more dangerous than Trump the man himself. Because Trump yeah. the man himself is always tripping Trump, over himself. Dude, dude. Dude, dude, <laughs> Trump, the man himself, is the fucking president just, of the United States. Jim Acosta is a douchebag. What's wrong with you? I get the. Weren't I you a libertarian once? What happened? I get the office. I can. I can give you, you a response. I get the office. The office. Do you remember when Jonah said anti-anti-Trumpism yes. becomes pro-Trumpism? The boss of what I'm telling you is Camille. Jim Acosta is maybe the boss of his own hairpiece. I'm not even clear about beyond Jim Acosta. It's also people on the left who found themselves 
being critical of the NSA and the intelligence community during previous administrations who were skeptical of certain programs, vacated their skepticism quite quickly when Barack Obama became president of the United States and didn't do anything about those things and now find themselves championing those same institutions. So, yes, the opposition kind of the opposition is hypocritical in opposition. Meanwhile, the people who can I ask you a question? (laughs) You just want to talk over me. Yeah, that's very white of you. By the way, did you notice Camille code switching right there? You going to talk over me? I'm just saying when you have that sort of corruption in you and you don't recognize it as corruption, you see it as virtue. Like, I think that's actually pretty dangerous. And that's what I mean when I say that that force could, in effect, be more consequential and dangerous than, yes, the guy who is leader of the free world, but who is also a dotard. Yeah, so I'll I'll agree with Jonah. Anti anti Trumpism sucks, man. Wow, <laughs> holy shit, dude! I, I give Camille credit okay. for 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 uh, pulling uh, dotard back into the conversation. That's true. That's yeah, absolutely. It's, true. it's been a, it's been a while. I think that Camille. One, one thing is that when we're talking about the the American system, American politics, one of the things that separates us from Europe, Europe obviously, is um, we don't have. 850 parties that have parliamentary representation and you have to have some weird kind of pensioners farmers party or now these days some far right party that's you know holds the balance of power particularly like in Sweden which was you know crazy there was second biggest party in the country nobody would work with them and now the social democrats remained in power it was insane so you lined up all the conservative the conservative leaning parties that were like over 50% but you know the thing is like when you say yeah no people are tribal And, you know, they're going to hate Bush for something and they're going to not pay attention when don't when uh, Barack Obama does it. And they're going to it's going to be reignited again when when uh, Donald Trump takes power. And that is in some ways, in some ways, not always, but in some ways because of a two party system. Whereas like, you know, in, in, you know, all these conservatives that who I thought were conservative and now they're just Trump people. The, the, the schismatic stuff in, in European politics, there's smaller right wing parties, right? There's like the Free Democrats in, in Germany. Then there is the CDU and there's the CSU. And you can actually find little homes and you're sort of be more ideologically aligned with everybody. This kind of big tent, one party Republicans, they just like gravitate to the person who's leading the party. And that you don't hmm. see that as much in European politics because you know, party leaders are, are, are less important when, you know, you're in these sort of coalition governments. But it's it's because there's 90 different parties to choose from on the left and like 80 different parties to choose from on the right. And people end up falling into those little parties. And they're not these kind of free radicals that are like, OK, I will be a George Bush neocon, you know, or I mean, wasn't even that neoconservative in some senses, or I will be a nationalist, non-conservative like Donald Trump, despite the fact that I wasn't this two weeks ago. But, you know, it's like, I'm not surprised by people who do that. I'm depressed by it, but I'm not surprised by it. Yeah. So this gets back to, I think Mike wasn't here for this part, but you know, it's the weakness of the parties that create a lot of these problems. Um, You know, it, it used to be the Republican Party or the Democratic Party had a long-term interest in protecting what they stood for in their brand and, and the interests that they represented and all the rest. And now they're basically marketing slogans. And so they're always, I think it's Ross Douthat said, you know, the parties are basically a fully fueled jet sitting on the runway waiting to be hijacked. <laughs> and, um, That's pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, and like, so, you know, um, and so you get, so part of the problem also is that because the parties are so weak, 
we've convinced ourselves in this weird way that we live in a parliamentary democracy. Mm. And so people, first of all, people think we vote for a party, not a person in some ways. And, um, and we also think that once they get into power, they can do things that parties can do in a parliamentary democracy that you can't do in our system. You watch the Democratic primaries before the plague, and it was one person after another saying, once I'm, you know, day one I'm elected, I'm going to ban guns, you know, make dogs stop licking themselves. <laughs> you know, and they went through these long list of things as if, like, all it took was getting inaugurated president to do all of these things. And it's just not how the system works. I mean, Elizabeth Warren promised, like, I mean, David French ran, did this great piece about it three or four like flat out illegal and unconstitutional things mm-hmm. um that she just vowed she would do kamala harris did similar stuff and so there's a there's a certain kind of um idolatry that has sort of enveloped the presidency we saw it with obama we see it with um with trump and when you have idolatry you know you also get angrier at the blasphemers you know the people who insult your totems and your your deities the problem is, is I'm totally with Matt on this. Those people don't freaking matter. You know, the idea, you know, I, I hear this constantly from friends of mine is like, yeah, but did you see what ABC News did? Who gives a shit? They're not, pre- you know, ABC News is not the president of the United States. This is not to say that ABC News or CNN or whatever is doing a good job. I think these guys make fools of themselves all the time. But simply because they make fools of themselves doesn't justify anything that Trump does. Certainly not. And that's that's the problem with the anti-anti-Trump stuff is that you start getting these false equivalences where you're like you get so mad at the New York Times that it somehow justifies anything that Donald Trump does. And I've seen it seen it happen to people. I mean, the invasion of the body snatchers thing is real. People go to bed one night saying all the right things and they wake up in the morning you know, all of a sudden, you know, wearing their red ties down past their balls and like talking about That's how Donald Trump indication. is the moral person they know. That's the first indication that you've been taken uh, over is the sub ball tie. <laughs> but it, well, to, you, to you this, never have to worry about that with me. To, 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 this, Matt will appreciate this point. So I'll give it to Matt in a second. Very quickly that um, to allow your friends to say that about ABC is to allow i just it allows people to be in the exact same page as the media themselves when you talk to people you see people on you know somebody who works at fucking vox or something note how powerful they think they are right mm-hmm. and you you allow mm-hmm. them to have that power when you say well you know this is an like this is what the new york times is saying this is what you know vox is saying it, to jonah's point which i agree with is nobody gives a shit like 98 0.9% of the population has no idea what Vox is and does not care. This is, I mean, remember that uh, I, you know, you met the guy, Camille, with me, the guy who did that, um, that uh, hidden tribes study from the University of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And that was yeah. the thing that the New York Times actually had a, that, that uh, great graph on the, how mm-hmm. left the mainstream uh, journalists of the left were on Twitter and they plotted this on this graph versus the mainstream of the Democratic Party. And they were about seven miles apart. And it's it's important to walk away from this stuff sometimes and say that, like, we're fighting. These guys are assholes and they're doing this stuff. It's, it's unfair. And they're, you know, making this horrible president seem reasonable because they're 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 using these 
these unfair tools in a way is that that's just something that we care about and that we talk about and the media believes they have an enormous amount of power, which is why, you know, they're saying like, we have to shut down, you know, or sanction these things that these people we don't like take Fox news off the air, whatever. I don't believe that any of these organizations are that powerful because if this were the case, I mean, a good example of this, and I know Matt and I had talked about this. There's a story in the New York times. And this is a, a this depressing. Camille's rubbing his face. I don't know why. It's, this, is a, this is a good story. No, I, I just saw the headline a headline about the president suggesting that people should perhaps be investigating injecting bleach into their yes, bodies. Yes, I, yes, that's that's good. why I that's made fine. that face and rub. I don't my know why you guys don't believe I am an honest conveyor <laughs> of information. I I've told you this. I never, I never <laughs> doubted you. Yeah. Yeah. Not for a second. It's incredible that, that President Trump is now Johnny Thunders. He's like you know shooting <laughs> weird things in his body. You know, he found puking uh, next to Tom Verlaine lane in, a, in an alley somewhere <laughs> but no yeah. this is the, the the power of the media the media gives itself there's a story in the new york times and the, this news was conveyed to me by matt's wife actually sent me an email about it that there is a bar owner in bay ridge brooklyn um, who owned a bar called jj bubbles now i was at that bar in i don't know november i can't remember what it was for the show that i was doing about impeachment and i hung out in that bar and got very very drunk with people and the piece did really well, got a couple of million views or whatever. Super uh, funny. Oh, my and, God. And, and, and so I was at JJ Bubbles because these guys were fun. And there was a guy covered in tattoos. Uh, there were all Guns N' Roses tattoos who got very drunk and told me how much he loved Michelle Obama, which was funny. But the owner of that bar, I talked to. He's in the piece. And he's like, I, I like Fox News. I, I, and, I, and he's like, I don't trust the New York Times. They have a bias. And I was like. Fox doesn't have a bias. <laughs> and he's like, well, you know, and we included that. And it was a funny little bit. And, and, but he was a lovely guy. And he told me that he, he liked Tucker Carlson and a couple of other things. Um, he died, uh, 72 years old of, uh, Corona related illness and the narrative that developed. And I think that my piece had a lot to do with it. Um, because his kids who were, um, lefties, as he explained it to me, and I think they said it in the piece too. Um, you know, a friend of theirs wrote the story and it was, and I saw Jonathan Chait, um, who, you know, you know, I don't dislike Jonathan Chait. I don't think he's a crazy alarmist, but then it said, you know, Fox news killed this guy. Right. And the hmm. timeline of it didn't make sense. Right. Cause he went on this cruise, you know, and Sean Hannity started saying this stuff long after, and he was a Tucker fan and Tucker in January was saying that the president wasn't taking this seriously. So it didn't make a ton of sense, but in the, there's a part of this that I was like, wow, these people really do believe that Fox News is that powerful. This guy says, well, I like it. I, this is kind of the one that I watch, which is the choice of a lot of people. And I don't watch it. I find it unwatchable myself, but they think that everybody but them, because they're clever, is this kind of, you know, zombie in the thriller video. Like they hear the voice of Brit Hume and they just like, oh, God, let's go out and lick railings all of a sudden because there's no such thing as coronavirus. And it's like, I don't, maybe that's true, but it's a, it's a the evidentiary standard at the, at the New York Times, that's true, was rather low. And I think it was because of this piece that I did that, that, that he was, he, he was in it saying, I, I love Fox News and I, I think that they're less biased than the, the other people. And I, you know, just thinking about after the fact, it was like, you people really do think that i do think fox News obviously has influence it's, it's not to say that it doesn't at all that's not what i'm saying but it, it is like they hear something and it switches off and then that's their view hey uh, so he was a very smart guy he was a very ahead, intelligent to be, guy to be uh to be uh, to make this crystal clear to people there 
Um, your interview was broadcast when or and and oh. the uh, or more or less right like doesn't have to be exact in november maybe and oh the, god i got so much hatred from bay ridge <laughs> Man, i cannot go to bay ridge i'm anymore. aware of this Let's put it that way Let's put it this way <laughs> i'm aware of this uh but like the uh the the offending uh, uh comments from uh sean hannity were when and the cruises were like the the uh, it was, it was the, 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 the cruise was like the the first of march uh, Hannity's comments were the seventh or eighth of March, and I think they did actually change, as as, as they, they they often do, change the actual body of the piece. I'm not sure about this, but I didn't remember this graph being in there with a quote from um, a Fox News spokesperson acknowledging. Oh that, no, they revised the piece over the course of a okay, day. Okay, so they did. Like That's that. what I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they said, you know, oh, it was these comments that we cited were after he'd come back from the cruise. And by the way, being in JJ Bubbles. Not so. Sure. I'm not so sure he got the COVID on that cruise. <laughs> I walked out of JJ Bubbles. I didn't take. I got chlamydia in yeah, JJ well. Bubbles. I don't know how. I literally every was in there for 25 minutes. Get, I want to put this in the, in the form of a, an actual question to Jonah, uh, which is to say, as someone who's been on Fox News a bunch, I think you were a contributor or are a contributor. I'm still a still contributor. contributor. Uh, congratulations yeah. for. Yeah, I'm never on. Yeah. I wonder why, but I'm, I'm a contributor. Um, so that doesn't Just to be clear, by the way, that means they still pay you. Yes. Okay, good. Uh, unlike uh, Camille or, or myself, now. but like, uh, 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 <laughs> so where, where, what is your perspective on that divide? Because clearly you also see the, the similar, like, oh my God, Fox News is telling my parents, my dad basically um yeah. you know what to think and that's terrible um you've also been on the inside of the beast and you're also a little bit more marginalized within it than you were before so what's your perspective on that kind of yeah fight? so i mean i'll be i'll be i'll, I'll disclose fully about the things i can't disclose yeah fully. I, I don't mean to put I've you on the told, spot by the way sorry no no it's fine it's fine i've been told many times um under various regimes that i really need to stop pissing inside the tent and um ales hated it New regime hates it. Certain personalities hate it. If one went back and looked through my Twitter feed, you can guess which personalities like it less than other people. Um, and so I have to be a little careful about some of it. This, during the global pandemic is not the time to start shedding sources of income. That said, <laughs> I will still defend the news side of Fox to a considerable degree. I think Brett Baer and Chris Wallace try very, very hard to be news people. And I think they do a pretty good job of it. And Shep, I might um, throw in there while he was there. And Shep, and Shep certainly did. Yeah. And um, and that there are and there are other people at the Vox at on, on the news side. I, you know, Chris Steyerwalt. I would not have expected it prior to all of you know prior to the last five years or something like that. I mean, I always liked him personally, but uh, I think Chris is one of the most impressive guys of integrity that I've met in the media. You know, there are a lot of good good people on the news side. Jillian Turner is great. I can't defend almost anything that happens on the opinion side. That doesn't mean I disagree with every, literally every single thing that shows up on Fox and Friends, which people don't realize is an opinion show, not a news show, um, or the stuff that happens in primetime, including the stuff that Tucker, who I've been friends with for 25 years, I just, they're, separating the wheat from the chaff is impossible for me at this point. And if that, if, if going that far gets me fired from Fox, so be it. But that is like the minimal thing I can say is that I cannot defend the stuff that comes out of a lot of the stuff that comes out of the opinion side. I think the way they talked about, I think the way they talk about Trump doesn't make any sense logically or morally. I think the way they talk about uh, 
the, until fairly recently about the pandemic is not really defensible. And, um, um, and if they would have me on to talk about it, I would go on and talk about it. But those invitations are not forthcoming because, and, and, and just to put this in context, I think MSNBC is a friggin' hot mess too. And whatever you want to say about Fox, and believe me, I have my criticisms. Fox News actually has news anchors. Tell me who the news anchors are at MSNBC. Craig Williams. Williams. Craig Williams. <laughs> <Craig Melvin. laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, it, I mean, because like in the spirit of the question, Mitchell, it's Craig Melvin and Chris Jansing rise to the top of the level. Steve. And, and, well, and Brian, Williams, Brian Williams did a very, very good live hit from the bombing of Dresden. Uh, I don't know if you saw <laughs> it, but I was impressed by it. No, like, it was a hot like, fire and he was right in there. <laughs> um, but like, I, 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 just simply to illustrate my point, Andrea Mitchell on the network is constantly touted as one of these legendary journalists and reporters. And she's the dean of this kind of reporter and the queen of that kind of reporter. And she, like the friggin' Viet Cong, goes back and forth across the border <laughs> between journalist and um, and opinion person, sometimes in within paragraphs. Um, there is nobody yeah, there who do doesn't it, do both. Who doesn't mm-hmm. do like serious, hardcore partisan punditry and news reading. And if you're the audience, figuring out the distinction between those two is hard. At Fox, you kind of know who Brett Baer is. You know who Chris mm-hmm. Wallace is. You know, you knew what Shep was doing, even though Shep sometimes crossed the line the other way to criticize, but he kind of felt morally compelled to do it to correct the record. The, those lines are far more blurred at MSNBC than they are at Fox. I just care more about Fox because it has greater influence and it's my name is associated with it. And it's a right of center place that is having a bigger impact on the stuff that I care about. What about, yeah. what about Tucker? I mean, you've known Tucker for a long time. I have too. I know, yeah. I know Matt has also. Um, and you know, Tucker was a very, very impressive print journalist. I mean, he was a great writer mm-hmm. back in the day. And I always remind people, they tend to forget this, that that Carla Faye Tucker piece of, you know, George Bush going boo-hoo was a Tucker piece, I think, I believe for George Magazine, right? Was that for yeah, George? Right. It literally um, changed my vote in that election. It really? That, oh, that, wow. that piece changed my vote. It did. Wow. It did. And he wrote stuff for that. I remember he wrote a Ron Paul piece for the New Republic. I mean, Tucker was a good uh, journalist. And OK, I get now he's cashing in, blah, blah, blah. The one thing, though, that I think that <laughs> keeps me, you know, I get him in some other ways that he will do the thing that and say the president isn't taking this stuff seriously. I don't think mm-hmm. that Sean Hannity will do that. I, I think that he is he's getting his marching orders, not from Trump himself, but from what he believes Trump to be giving him and will, you know, ch- change on a dime. And you can make those kind of uh, things that are, are terrific for The Daily Show where you cut them together. And it's just so easy with somebody like Hannity. Mm-hmm. But I think that, that Tucker is a person who actually believes. I mean, he I, I interviewed him a long time ago when I was at Reason and he was talking about how libertarian he was and that he was essentially a libertarian. Do you remember that, Matt? You, it was, I do. It's still up on the side. It was side, right yeah. within the- He was a fellow at Cato for yeah, a sure fellow at Cato. And, he, and, and, and now- Just railing I mean, against the Koch brothers, my God. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, he's gone the other direction so far. We have a very good mutual friend that I think all of us here know, uh, maybe with the exception of Camille, I'm not sure, that, um, that I have to uh, um, talk to him about, um, about Tucker's- uh, evolution devolution whatever you call it but i believe that tucker thinks this stuff because he does stray off the trump reservation when he thinks that trump is wrong he's i don't think he's taking his marching orders from trump but there was some time 
in when he became, you know, this Buchananite, which was so bizarre to me. Well, isn't it isn't it uh, in fairness to Tucker, like, uh, isn't he the best broadcast version of whatever unholy cocktail the new nationalists and neo phalangists are co- cooking up over there that we talked about you refer to him as a phalangist wow. not not tucker i'm, I'm talking yeah. about the other people who are actual yeah. phalangists we've I, talked I about him with that furrowed brown talking like why do you hate franco uh, <laughs> just, it's all, no, but salazar like, was a great leader there's a kind of post-trump nationalist oh we got a lot of conservatism or conservatism got a lot of things wrong before we were part of that problem now we're part of the solution and trump is not necessarily our perfect avatar but the jonah goldberg world is dead and we are creating yes. a new world type of conservatives i realized that was a lot of hyphens um mm-hmm. but um <laughs> but that's my best case besides the fact that uh, i think i think it's a fact that uh tucker is a gifted broadcaster regardless of what one thinks of what he's broadcasting. He's very gifted in a lot of ways. You know, he's a gifted writer. He's a good, he's a good broadcaster. Yeah. uh, First in the line to talk about his magazine journalism, but like, isn't he giving uh, kind of, you know, the necessarily crude television voice to a kind of um, pro post Trump or mid Trump conservatism. Right. So it's like, it's not, it's not like he's necessarily setting his sail into the wind exactly but it's more that there is a a a group of conservatives who like you know what what we thought about trade with china is wrong man um and camille's gonna go with him in like another week and a half here but like uh (laughs) (laughs) do you you know like every show i say i say camille's black something i think i i don't know how i've not said he's black tucker carlson because <laughs> like, Tucker Carlson's the least black person next to you. <laughs> wow! I mean, Camille used to do bow ties. He did, but Just I will like say Tucker. this quickly. Before I want to hear Joan on this, but I, I say quickly that that I actually don't think it's a dumbed down version. I think that you know, if you watch some of Tucker's monologues, they're well written. They're oh, yeah. kind of lyrical in ways. They hit the points in the in the right sense. I mean, he's writing those things himself. Clearly, I mean, I don't think that half the people over there write their Dumbed own stuff. Down is, is your word, not mine. I, crude, just like you know, crude. It's, okay, it's, crude. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that you know, I, I think the ideas are crude uh, in, in, because I disagree with them. But I think that Tucker's very good at what he does, and I find it hard sometimes to say that because when I see him, I'm just like, oh man, come on, and and but smart guy and he's he's i think that's why people find him dangerous is that he's a very good spokesman for this cause i mean imagine if donald trump was smart and he'd be tucker carlson right jonah you're you're under no obligation to to savage to savage your colleague yeah i'm not gonna i'm not gonna savage tucker i agree i agree tucker's very smart and he's very good at what he does I think There's he's also generally here. been pretty good on the COVID stuff early on and you know, even yeah, in articulating yeah. like the most respectable version of the um, maybe the shutdown stuff is a bit too severe and perhaps we should talk about some of the other concerns uh, that exist. I think he's actually yeah, been I mean, like quite good and articulate on that stuff on occasion. I, I, I agree with all that and I won't say anything that I wouldn't say to his face. And, you know, Tucker and I had gotten some pretty angry and heated text exchange exchanges of uh, in the past. Um, but I still like the guy personally. Um, I think he's profoundly wrong about a whole number of things. Mm-hmm. And 
I think that he, um, there is a weird irony, right? I defended him pretty passionately in when John Stewart did that BS attack on him on Crossfire that basically ended Crossfire mm -hmm. back when you were in grade school or whatever. Mm -hmm. And hey, um, I wrote a bunch of reason. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I defended him. Um, <laughs> yeah. Then it was a, it was an incoherent <laughs> attack. Yeah, and so the the problem is. The thing that you remember this the the major critique about John Stewart back then was that he was sort of the the Yasser Arafat of political comedy, where <laughs> clown knows um, on, clown knows off, yeah, yeah, clown knows on, clown knows off. Yeah. You know, I I speak in scathing political diatribe in one language. Yeah. You know, like and Arafat would say wonderful things September. about American English, and then in Arabic he would say death to the Jews. <laughs> and he anytime. Stewart got any pushback, including from Tucker. He was, hey, look, I'm just a comedian. Tucker, when he does his stuff about how the free market is just a tool and the free market isn't working and everyone's owned by donors and we need something different and yada, 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 you press him on it and he says, well, look, I'm not an economist, you know, and I'm not, you know, and, and there is this, he's really good at the rhetorical attacks on stuff he doesn't like, um, which is not to say that I think all of his attacks. I think what he did with Ben Sass and 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 Paul Singer and all that kind of stuff was pretty grotesque. Um, you know, yeah, he that said bad. that Paul yeah. Paul Singer was the, the was the largest contributor to Ben Sass's pack, by which he meant he gave like thirty two hundred or twenty eight hundred dollars, which was the maximum, which made Paul Singer one of like five thousand equally large donors, and said that Sass was owned because of all that kind of stuff. There's a <laughs> lot of demagoguery. That he mm -hmm. is skillful at pulling off. True. More more broadly, though, um, I this is sort of the point I was getting about about your baseless and vitriolic attack on the peaceful annexation of Greenland. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> when there are smart people making smart arguments, and I think Tucker is perfectly capable of being one of them, and sometimes he is making a case against you know, free trade, making a case for nationalism and all of these kinds of things. The second you hitch your wagon to Trumpism to, to, because it's politically popular, you're going to be forced to make a choice between supporting Trump or your cause. And I think that Tucker gets as caught up in that, not as much as Hannity who has made his choices, but he gets caught up in that tension often and to his credit, sometimes he picks he he picks a his ground to fight on, like he did on the coronavirus stuff. But a lot of other times he doesn't, and I think it's sort of a hot mess ultimately conceptually. But I also think that you know there are lots of people who are like serious, you know, intellectuals far beyond you know people like me, like Adrian Vermeule is this brilliant Harvard professor, and I think his stuff about nationalism or or post-liberalism is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. I mean, I just think it's, it's idiotic. Bananas. And um, <laughs> and same thing with Rusty Reno and a lot of these guys. They are all Rusty Reno. Are, is that a stripper? R.R. Reno. Reno from yeah. First Things. I've never heard Rusty. It sounds like a porn star. star. Rusty Reno. Rusty Shackelford is the real oh, porn oh, yeah. star. <laughs> yeah, it's Rusty Shackelford. <laughs> Rusty Shackelford. Isn't he? He's like a, a radio host in like Denver, right? Yeah, I want to say the, or like Canada. the, the Mountain same West thing. somewhere. Same, same thing. Difference. It's all the same. 
He is a, Alberta. Literally has Jonah, a novel you... called Salty Thighs. Go on. Oh, that's right. That's right. Salty Tears. Um, it's pretty late. I, I don't I don't know how much longer you can hang out with us, Jonah. And I, yeah, I it, wanna... is, it, is, it is late for me. I'm an early morning right. guy. So like I get yeah. up at like quarter to five. Just for, morning, for kind of the thing. listeners uh, understanding. We're, we're, this isn't a this is an aside. We had said to Jonah, like, hey, let's do 8.30. It's like, morning, right? Like, what the <laughs> living hell? Yeah. I was literally in, in a gutter, like on Lafayette Street, p- pulling myself out. They still have, like, gutters? Uh-huh. It's just me. Okay. I'm the only one in there. So, um, so before we keep going, I want to figure just, out when just we some, have to some let Jonah quick go. accessories life advice on this point. Just, you know, like, I got this advice a long time ago. The only uh, part of the day that you can own is the morning. Mm. Because by the time you get the middle of the day, the day owns you. Hmm. And all you're doing is putting out fires and dealing with problems in the morning. That's the only time you can really write what you want to write. That's the only time you can think what you want to think and do the things that you want to do. And then by lunchtime, you got a food coma or you got meetings or whatever. And I sort of internalize that. And I'm a morning guy. I just stay up all night. And yeah. then I, my, my, I'm just getting started. Little, yeah. You know. But uh, I know, and then you wake up in blood, covered in blood that's not your own, which is a weird thing too. You just held up a pill bottle, just so you know. Um, (laughs) Speaking of Larry Kudlow, now, um, easy. He admits it. Speaking of talkie, no, um, we have a lot of people on the right. Better, better, yeah, better. Talkie talkie jokes are acceptable. Who, by the way, I have to say this: Talkie wrote a very good book about this. You know this, right? I mean, he wrote a no. book about getting arrested uh, with a very small amount of cocaine going into Heathrow, I believe. And um, um, well, he went to jail. I mean, Taki went to jail for this. And apparently he went to the most anti-Semitic jail in Europe. He came out as, you know, Taki. And uh, he wrote a book about it. And it's actually quite funny. And I hate to acknowledge that because he's a bad person. He is a bad <laughs> he's person. Just generally he's a bad person. A bad person. Like that, 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 that egg thing from Willy Wonka that judges whether you're a good or a bad, good egg or a bad egg. He's a bad egg. <laughs> he's a bad egg. He just, he'd go down he's the a, hole. He's a, he's a bad, bad egg. egg. The first thing I once uh, mentioned, this, I think maybe I mentioned this, show, the first thing that I ever had published that was outside of a college newspaper was a letter to the New York press that Russ. Oh, I thought you were going to say penthouse. Yeah, that, was a, yeah, that, was a, that was the first, I'm talking about the first thing under my own name, um, <laughs> um, was uh, that Russ Smith published of me. Um, and I have it somewhere taking issue with something that Tonky, uh, Taki wrote defending the SS Charlemagne division as essentially anti-communist. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, sure. And and, you know, anti-Semitic too, but, but so yeah, there was a, there was a piece and that was, uh, uh my first thing, uh, that it was outside of a college newspaper. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you very much. Are you still a Republican? I, I, this is this weird thing. I've never really cared about calling myself a Republican one way or the other. I just uh, heard no. Yeah. I guess, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say no. I'm just, this is the, Lionel with the Republican point. Part. This is the middle of the journey we're at right now. Yeah, no, no. I'm, but like, I've never lived anywhere where I, my vote, I, I don't care about voting. People are like, who are you going to vote for? Who are you going to vote for? I don't know, and I don't care. I've never lived anywhere my vote wasn't canceled out seven to one mm. um, minimum. And there's this weird, I mean, the, I keep meaning to write about it. There's this weird sort of mystical thing that people think that if I said I was going to vote for Biden, that means I got to start writing all sorts of pro-Biden columns. Mm-hmm. Or if I said I was going to vote for Trump, I got to write anti-Biden columns or pro-Trump columns. And I just don't think of it that way. I don't care that much about my vote, at least not in presidential elections. I Do I agree more with the Republican Party than the Democratic Party? Sure. But I'm also more disappointed in the Republican Party than the Democratic Party. Yeah, and I was just wondering if you felt politically homeless at this point. I mean, and I, I asked like- and we I covered know, some of this before you got here. Yeah, no, and you know, I know that, still, I know you know. that 
um, assumed that sort of your answer, but you know, of course you've been affiliated with places and, you know, people who have paid you for years that are, that, you know, are, are far more, um, amenable to Republican party politics than they are, um, sure. the other side. Um, and it, I think political homelessness in this, uh, you know, I mean, I mentioned Lionel Trilling. I mean, it's like, you're doing yeah. a, you're doing a re- reverse James Burnham. I think you're going, I think you're going to a little bit. Well, look, the, my podcast is called the remnant, which is a reference to Albert J. Knopf. Right? Yes. And there's, it, it wasn't an accident. So, who Bill I mean, Buckley that, was a big that, fan of. Yeah. Yeah. But so were lots of libertarians. Yeah. I mean, he's sort of, He's sort of the common ancestor between a lot of libertarians and a lot of conservatives. So. Anyway, there's that. You had, I recall, in one of the many uh, debates that we used to do, I think you and I did one too, right? Didn't we do one at like, AEI? We did one at AEI, AEI yeah, about it. 10 years ago. Something I was like 15 probably at this point. And you certainly did some other ones with- uh, I, uh, I remember that one. With Nick Gillespie. They all like totally yeah, like, sold yeah. out. And before that- Jonah trounced me. Mike but, Lynch. Like, he was great. Um, but like <laughs> uh, your, your arguments then were that uh, among other, you know, I'll distill this, but like is that- um, conservative or republican but mostly conservative economics were libertarian economics right like like what is con- that was true once <laughs> so yeah <laughs> going straight to my question there uh, <laughs> like that shit ain't true anymore right like uh, no no that's yeah. right that's right you're absolutely right and that's a great disappointment to me and this is sort of getting to the stuff that we we're talking about earlier i haven't changed my view on that the people around me have i'm not on a journey I'm like handcuffed to a radiator, you know, or like, um, you know, locked on a inside of a van with a tear stained mattress while yeah. everybody else is going nuts. Yeah. yeah. And, I was about to make um, my second Joseph Fritzel joke in as many episodes, <laughs> but yeah, go ahead. And, and so, like, uh, I still, I'm perfectly willing to concede that. I thought that stuff was true at the time. I still think it was largely true at the time when I said it, but it is not true now. Will we get it back is just to simply that, not think? true now. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's kind of a depressing prospect, but I, I think I'm going to probably spend the rest of my life arguing just to get back to where we were when I was a teenager or something like yeah. that. I mean, it's that it's 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 a problem. And I, 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 you know, it's late, but I do think that there are opportunities. I hate, hate people say, oh, crisis is a terrible thing to waste and all that kind of crap. But I do think that the parties do not have much longer to live. I think that uh, the pandemic is radically changing um, the political assumptions that we all grew up with. I mean, just to give you an example, I was writing about this today. The, you know, I'm, I'm pro-immigration. I like immigration. Doesn't mean I wouldn't make you know make changes to existing policy but I, I i'm a i was always more of a squish on immigration than the rest of nr <laughs> when i was there um but glibly and cavalierly saying that immigrants do jobs americans won't do when 22 million 25 million people are unemployed completely different political frequency right um talking dismissing certain jobs as hamburger flipper jobs or whatever um, when these guys are basically the frontline people during this pandemic, risking their lives to give you groceries and stuff, um, totally unacceptable. Uh, the the simple fact is that however long it takes for America to get out of the out of the woods on the pandemic, the the 
poorer parts of the world are going to be in it far longer. And the argument about importing workers from those parts of the world, just the frequent, the, the, just the resonance of so many of these issues are going to change in all sorts of ways. You, know, you guys talked about how much money we're spending. The Republican Party is pot committed to spending trillions of dollars in the next couple of years. Most Republicans don't know how to make arguments about that kind of stuff. And so I think both parties are going to be in open territory, in strange territory, not knowing how to make the arguments. And you can see radical changes in coalitions in our politics. And so there may be new opportunities for people like me or for libertarians, for that matter. And I've become much more libertarian over the years um, to win new converts in unsuspected places. You think there might actually be an appetite for limited government and less spending, even in the midst of and the immediate aftermath of something like this? Because I am skeptical of that proposition. I'd like to believe it's true. I'd like to believe it's true. I, look, I, I'm not committing to any predictions, but mm -hmm. um, the last major pandemic we had, 1918-1919, or 1917-1918, far worse. Many more people, knock on wood, died in that than will die in this. We also had this terrible war, which had lots of censorship and food rationing and um, jingoism and populism that makes today's stuff seem like nothing. And the second, the worst president of the 20th century, Woodrow Wilson, got out of office, we had the roaring 20s with, you know, limited government and booming economy and a return to normalcy and all the rest. That gives me some hope, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think that there are going to be a bunch of people who are like, I... I think there are, but it's possible that people will emerge from this saying, wow, we got a lot of government recently. Maybe, maybe we could use a little less. Yeah. Um, I do think that Republicans are going to have to get off the idea that taxing billionaires is an evil thing. Um, even though, you know, I was against raising taxes, you know, all, all that wealth tax shit, and I still am. But in the wake of the pandemic and the money that we're spending, shared sacrifice just ta also takes on a whole new residence. And so I just think a lot of assumptions and talking points are going to go out the window in the next few years. Yeah, it's just most of those taxes on the billionaire schemes that I've I've actually heard talked about. I mean, they're they're completely inconsequential given the scope sure. of the spending that's happening. Um, yeah, relatedly, one one post that I received on on Twitter uh, uh, this week, someone flagged it for me. I think as a in an attempt to dunk on me, um, <laughs> was highlighting the projected unemployment numbers that are coming out of Europe. And essentially contrasting the respective rescue packages that have been formulated on on this side of the pond and that side of the pond. And obviously, the the numbers in the United States are significantly worse than the projected numbers that you're seeing coming out of Europe right now, especially since you haven't seen any sweeping policies that suggest they'll account for, you know, 75, 80 percent of the salaries of workers who are potentially going to lose their job or something. The fact that there might be difference outcomes in the medium long run versus the short run is not something that I think computes very well. And the carnage that's likely to appear once the dust begins to settle, whatever the hell that means, I just don't know that people are going to be able to disentangle themselves from all of that. It's uh, no, I, I worry about an interesting that. scene. Perfect, I think it's a perfectly legitimate worry. I mean, Moynihan would know this stuff better than I do given the, you know, the rootless, rootless cosmopolitan life that he lives. <laughs> but uh, the, um, 
one of the downsides of Europe's political economy is that it's much less innovative and dynamic because the role of public sector unions and entitlements and protections for the middle class. The weird irony is, is that when you have a global shock like this pandemic, a lot of that stuff become features, not bugs, because you become more, those people become more immune. They have more protections yep. and they're more in place. And so it's more of a steady state economy than a dynamic economy. Yeah. Hmm. And, you know, this is one of these things that I just drive, it's, it's going to drive everybody crazy as we try to figure out how to talk about this stuff, that things that are acceptable during a true emergency like this, um, you need to make peace with the fact that they're acceptable during an emergency, but they're not acceptable when the emergency is over. And um, the worry for me is the lag time and the, the habituation process where people think that the emergency stuff should, should last forever. But, you know, like, I, you know, I'm very much against, um, you know, peeing on my curtains and in almost all circumstances, I'm against other people peeing on the curtains in my house, unless there's a fire. And that is the only way to put them out. Right. There are times when circumstances are such that the normal rules don't apply. Yeah. And, um, you know, I get the dig because one time I peed on Jonah's curtains yeah. and yeah. Uh, <laughs> I you remember that. yeah, it was, uh, I mean, that's very uncomfortable. It's confusing. But, uh, yeah. Uh, I'm glad you brought it up because uh, I was yeah, just I know. I just wanted, to, <laughs> just wanted to get it out there. Um all right guys. It was great to be here, you, but I'm gonna leave you. Thank you, Jonah. Jonah. Yeah. Thank you, Appreciate Jonah. it. Appreciate um, it, brother. So Jonah's fun. He's a nice, nice gentleman. How do you spend some time he's with him? He's a smart guy. You disagree with yeah. him and he's still uh, respectful. Please him, understand that when he mentioned yeah. at the end that we knew each other in Prague that we actually didn't. Um <laughs> <laughs> No, no, no. He said he met you in Prague. Okay. Uh, that, is that true? Is that true? <laughs> Probably. I'm not inviting this story, by the way. <laughs> I'm just asking. No, it's I, true. Whatever. If, we, if it, it's me and Prague, we have to belabor it for like as long as humanly possible. Because I've been 30 minutes later. Uh, he's like, so then we're in no, Croatia. I, I don't know if I've mentioned <laughs> this to you before, but like the first person to ever write a screw Matt Welch letter to the editor of the newspaper that I founded in Prague when I was 22 years old was Jonah Goldberg. Wait, was he wow. living there? Or was he oh. just living through? there in Prague. And, and the final, uh, the, the, the kicker of his life, I'm not talking out of school here and we're obviously friendly um, is like hooray for the Pope of Prague. Oh, yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah. So he <laughs> did did he like, realize that that's still the case? Yeah. No, my God. <laughs> if he knew that he's so uh, uh, Does he remember the contents of that letter? Uh, probably not what precipitated. You should have reminded him because it clearly it affected you. You remember the kicking, the kicker line of a letter from 25 well, years ago. Here's the thing it's a really good kicker, right? Like, like it's a good it dig. Is. It's pretty good. Uh, <laughs> Jonah's a funny writer. It's a yeah. funny writer. And he was the first person who's like, hey, usually people who are writing like, uh, like shit letters to me are people who I know personally. And I didn't know yeah. him. He was a friend of a friend back then so um, uh yeah it was a very well yeah jenna was jenna was great i appreciate uh having him on and uh we will hopefully i think that uh we won't say names or anything like this but i hope they think that um uh, judging from an email chain that we had today and you're 
do a little Patreon stuff. You get a little extra information uh, that we will have somebody who's kind of the opposite of Jonah soon, mm-hmm. um, who will who will make people mm-hmm. very happy. A really big guest, and it'll be it'll be fun. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, award sure. garlanded uh, guest. Um, and it, it will be a. I'm very excited for that episode. I, I suppose I can give a clue and and at least say he's he's probably a little more welcome on uh, on Tucker Carlson. But, yeah, <laughs> yes, whatever. possibly, um, possibly. Uh, it is a good clue, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so a lot of COVID related news because we mm. really haven't talked about that. We hinted around it. We did tease earlier, Moynihan, before you got here, um, the new um, study that finds a lot of antibodies um, in New York City proper about 13.9% of folks in this in this survey state and, and that was mentioned by Cuomo today right yeah. yeah mentioned by Cuomo today 21% of people in New York yeah. City but i i also Cheapers. i also laid out specific reasons why i suspect the percentages are actually higher because this is not a random sample and it necessarily excludes some high risk populations and by high risk i don't mean that they're at high risk of dying i mean they're likely high risk of actually having it. So if you're homesick, coughing, and you're not out in the street, you're definitely not in this sample. But more importantly, institutionalized people, folks in nursing homes, you heard me say this earlier, if you're not Moynihan. So that's interesting. Camille, you you know about this study and I don't because I've been traveling. Uh Um, Let me ask you a question about it. It's 20 odd percent in New York City and then 14 plus in the whole state. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. 21, 21% in New York City, 13.9% across so the state. So almost a quarter some of, of the New York City is infected, yeah. has been infected with coronavirus. Yeah. One, wow. one in five people. And, and honestly, I really do think the number Oof. might in fact be higher. What's, what's interesting though is this definitely means that the death rate is lower than, you know, 1%, which is good because at points we've been told that it might be higher than three. Um, but there is a significant question here. If that number is lower, than the actual percentage of New Yorkers who may in fact have been exposed to COVID already, then that is actually good news. Great news. Um, because it suggests great, that death rate news. is yeah. is a lot lower. And I know a lot of people who who thought that this might be uh, pretty prevalent in New York were actually thinking somewhere in the 30% range or maybe a little higher. So there was a little bit of, of disappointment there. So that's, that's interesting news. Um, I don't know what it means from a policy standpoint. But relatedly, we do know that Georgia is supposed to be reopening for business tomorrow. And both Georgia and New York have seen um, improvements in their numbers in terms of the number of cases that are coming in on a daily basis, as well as the number of people who are dying. Um, Georgia obviously doesn't have nearly as significant an issue as New York does, um, but that's obviously created a, a great deal of controversy. I don't know where you gentlemen are on this. Um, this has become a very lonely project for the Governor Kemp has been promoting this policy with the expectation perhaps that Donald Trump would also endorse it. But yeah, the president not. has he, been yeah. somewhat critical of the decision to reopen barbershops and yes. uh, movie theaters and a bunch of other stuff. I um, will say this quickly, s- that, that on that yeah. point, just so I don't forget, I was on Capitol Hill today while um, the House was voting on this uh, PPP uh, bill for bailing out... Um, uh, you know, sal- like small businesses and salaries and things like that. You get ba- the, the broad strokes are, you know, if you give 75% of this money that you get to, to paying salaries, uh, it will mm-hmm. be forgiven. That's the, that's the sort of broad strokes of it. And I talked to right. a number of people, people today and I talked to one person that, um, uh, is close to the Trump administration and has talked to the president himself. And, uh, I brought this up. Um, 
And I brought this up, uh, the uh, governor of Georgia and Trump's thing. And he kind of gave me a wry smile and he's like, president doesn't believe that. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, he doesn't believe it. He absolutely doesn't believe it. There's some internal jockeying to make sure that the messaging is that he's, he does not uh, putting his thumbprint on. Oh, yeah, he, doesn't, a disaster. he doesn't want to own anything. He, he doesn't, doesn't want to own anything. And, and, yeah. and, and this person was telling me, uh, um, that it is is clearly true from conversations he's had with the president that 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 he doesn't believe this for a second. Um, yeah, it strikes me. It strikes me as I, mean, but I would just say on that is that I don't I don't actually like this. Let's open it up. That when it becomes ideological, I like it when it's not ideological because I think that there's two cases to be made here. There's a sort of left case, the right case, a center case, um, maybe multiple cases, uh, not just two, but if you care about the working class, if you care about poor people, if you care about people who um, are, you know, working at restaurants, I mean, the number of idiots on Twitter is in so many things that you can say about AOC, the number of fucking asshole idiot Republicans, you guys have to stop this. If you're listening to this and you've done this, stop saying she's a bartender. Stop it. It's not funny. <laughs> it's not interesting. And she's not. She's a congresswoman. And she won a race that nobody expects. She's actually very impressive in that way. I disagree with 99.9% of the things she says. Stop saying she's a bartender. But there are bartenders out there because restaurants are closed that do not have an income. And it's important mm-hmm. to get people like that back to work. But if you're doing it in an ideological way, I don't know what the testing regime is and what the situation is like in in um, Georgia. And there are a number of people that say this, and I don't know if this is true or not, because I'm just, I'm not a scientist that, Hey, you know, shelter in place stuff has actually made it worse because it's, it's, you know, within the family and blah, blah, blah. And well, Cuomo, I, Cuomo has suggested that explicitly. He has. In, in and, some respects, he thinks that, that it may have been, there may be things about the execution that, that could be sure. potentially problematic. And, and, I don't want to overstate it. Yeah. And credit to him for actually saying that. I didn't hear him say that, but you know, Megan McArdle, um, who I know is a friend of uh, of ours, and in 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 a lot of ways, I mean, she's she's brilliantly smart and a great writer. And uh, she said something today on Twitter when I was I was coming back uh, in the back of the car, and I saw this, and she said, "You know, I can't give me a good argument." And she's being very honest. Give me a good argument that shelter in place isn't beneficial. You know, just in the broad sense, it has to be beneficial is what you're saying. And I tend to agree with her on that in the sense that, like, if properly executed, it's terrible. It's terrible for the economy. But is it beneficial in that broad medical sense? Is it is it preventing the spread of this? It seems like it can't not be right. And there are people mm-hmm. that make counter arguments. I'm, I'm interested in those, too, because I don't I'm not an expert in these things. But that said, is Georgia ready to open up? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what they're, the, what, where, where they are in this thing. And I've saw a number of people that said in Georgia that they would not actually open up despite the fact that the governor said they could. There was a, uh, uh, a tweet from four hours ago from Scott Gottlieb, who is the former FDA chief under Trump and who has been providing some of the best content about um, coronavirus. And I mean, very hawkish on it, too. I mean, best. Uh, Mostly because um, I use this for the Reason Roundtable podcast. He's he talks so fast. He's like so coked out of his skull that like he will say <laughs> 5000 things in a space that it took me to say these past 30 seconds worth of nothing. He's like the Steve <laughs> Rubel. <It's just> a- <laughs> 
<laughs> you remember that Moynihan? Are you all old enough to remember that guy who would like do the? Was it Wendy's? Joe Azuzu? What was it? What was it? Joe Zuzu? Yeah, some Joe Azuzu. Whatever. Yeah. that guy. Anyways, Scott Gottlieb. Four hours ago, thread the la- the latest update of the closely watched model of COVID nineteen spread in the U.S. shows an epidemic in some states, especially Georgia, that has worsened. From the prior update and the Georgia epidemic now isn't estimated to peak until later. Um, so um, Scott Gottlieb it would have had an influence on the president could have it, it, it could be. I mean, the, the president went from being the guy to say four or five days ago or, or thereabouts of like, you know, we need to liberate Minnesota. Yeah, we have to, <laughs> to like telling the governor of Georgia, what like, hey, you know, slow head. down. Don't liberate so quick now because. Uh, you know, you inject this stuff straight into your ass. Uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, who knows? There is uh, I, I was happy to see today a couple of studies to suggest, including one also popularized by Scott Gottlieb, um, that was based entirely on red China. So do not take mm-hmm. it for being the gospel. Um, but uh, as saying that. The spreading moments of the 318 communist red China reports about whatever um, uh, basically didn't come from outside like it came from inside mm-hmm. stuff. And there was another piece, a companion almost piece, although it wasn't a companion in Quillette that was actually pretty good um, uh, that was uh, drilling down into super spreader events. Like what were those things? What were those moments that caused mm-hmm. that? Mm-hmm. And finding a lot of commonalities between those moments and they're just basically a lot of loud talkers in in small circumstances in in indoors uh screaming at each other so it's religious and some others um so i hope and it's only a hope i have no evidence preliminary evidence Mm -hmm. but my god i hope that and and also the president's uh press conference uh tonight and again we're talking about this on a thursday night um it was all talking about the importance of ultraviolet rays and outdoors and sunshine and temperature measures and humidity to all of this, which kind of just seems logical because that's how viruses have tended to work over time. Um, I want that all to be true. I hope it's true. I don't know if it's true. I want it all to be true because I don't want any other like cops chasing down skin borders in Malibu <laughs> And I want to go outside. Outside's What's a pretty skin border. Skin border. Like it's <laughs> when you have the little. You don't have. To, you actually don't have to yeah. answer that question, Matt. <laughs> it's pretty. It's pretty rough. Uh, yeah. But no, like I want to go outside. I want to go to the park. I like. I want. I want people to not be like, oh my god, there's people in the. You know, like the morning. I want Moynihan to stop narking in a way that's useful for the governor of the state of Start New York. Start snitching. Stop it. <laughs> Go outside. Like, obviously, outside and the air is I good. I never fucking snitched. You the only thing I said was I made shit. a joke about it. And everyone was like, and the fucking governor gets it. And I can't help it, Matt, that people love my Twitter feed so much that it gets up to the governor. The governor's paying Have attention. Have you guys paid attention, by the way, to how much, like, Chris Cuomo has created, like, a whole truther? Chris Cuomo oh, thing. Oh, that's right. You know, one like, of them. One of them is a guy that I know named Camille Foster. No, 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 no. no like <laughs> Camille's not the truther. Chris Cuomo is the truther. They are fabricating Wait, evidence. They totally what? are. Seriously, go follow fabricate fabricating evidence of what. So Chris Cuomo on CNN 
uh, a few days ago had a whole thing. He dramatically came out of his basement. Oh, yeah, dramatically where he came, 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 came out of his basement. Like, yeah, came out of the basement. Only now yeah. have yeah. I been cleared by the CDC yes. to come out and hug my wife. You lying yeah. asshole. You seriously. Yeah, yeah, he, he nearly got into that street fight. <laughs> no, but like that moment came days after the street fight. Yeah. Which was him yeah, on a bike, COVID positive. <laughs> In like some property video, well, he, he wasn't on the bike. He was at his house. And I think the, the house in the Hamptons is actually where he has been sheltering. Yes. But he was outside, apparently with his family. And the guy on the bike sees him from some distance away and screams at him. Hey, dude, aren't you Chris Cuomo? Aren't you supposed to be inside? <laughs> <laughs> you have the COVID, and the guy Speaking claims of to narcs, be. By the way, he the guy claims the fat, tired to be. Bicycle. I'm on his side, totally on his side right now. <laughs> he claims to be a Democrat, so this is not the same thing as like someone walking up on him and saying, "Hey, Fredo." Like I'm yeah. gonna, I'm gonna it's totally not, troll it's not you. Like, it's like Seb Gorka, like was like waddling yeah. down the street and was like, "But let's not be surprised at Democrats yes. being goddamn narcs in New York." Come on, no, nah, yeah. no. This is the oh, social. Sorry, no, this no, is no, the no, social no. distance warrior. No, no, Matt. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's a social distance. <laughs> Matt, I want to point out this is not New York. It's East Hampton. That's for rich people. That's not for regular people. And I just love the fact that this is the great thing about this is that when all of these of the people kind of pundits, you know, like they're like, I got to shelter in place now. There's a couple of versions of this recently that I've seen. And I'm like, like literally where we start talking about Rosebud. I mean, there's like these enormous palatial places. I'm like, you make that as a journalist. What are you talking about? So that's been the b- b- great revealing thing about this is seeing seeing uh, all these places that Chris Cuomo lives in the Ham- you have a Hamptons place. Get the fuck out of here. But by the <laughs> way, my cameraman um, was sitting on a bench um, in front of our hotel in the wharf in D.C. Do you know about this wharf thing? The it's fish new. place? No. Yeah. No, it's just the whole area down. That's where AOC lives. It's this whole area that they just built out of nothing. It used to be like a. Like a, just like a crackdown or something. Now it's always nice oh, places. down by the uh, 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 baseball stadium. Yes, yeah. it's, it's well, it's actually not. It's that's a little further. That's that's where I thought she lived. But it's uh, it's it's um, you know across from the Jefferson Memorial, closer to yeah, the yeah, Capitol yeah, building. Okay. So yeah, it's, so it's pretty interesting. And 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 it was crawling with uh, with narcs. It was crawling with uh, national guardsmen and women mm. uh, because the national guards women told my cameraman that he couldn't sit. On a bench, because we're stuck in our hotels, we're waiting for for people for an interview. So lazy, so hmm. lazy. And it was like, and like on a bench, and like it's like, what? You think the corona is going to get you? It's going to reach out and get you? <laughs> I sent this to you guys, right? Did I send you? Sure you did. Yeah, you did. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure he moved along expeditiously. Of course he did. He's obeys the yeah. law. He's a very yeah, law-abiding yeah. guy. He's a lovely guy. And he, well, he, and he was like, does this make any sense to you? I'm it, like, no. it, it doesn't make any sense. Sitting on a bench by yourself does not put you at risk of the COVID. I, no. I, I will say this about Georgia, um, since I, I didn't weigh in earlier. Um, you love Stacey Abrams? It does It does look like the, the case count is actually still still increasing a bit. does look like the, the death rate is perhaps leveling off, but perhaps hasn't quite peaked yet. I don't know if the opening is likely to make those figures worse or if those figures would have gotten worse either way. We simply can't run that experiment. What I do suspect strongly, (laughs) to use a Trumpian word, 
um, is that in much the same way that places like Sweden find that even without prohibiting certain activities, people That's don't right. do those activities, yeah. that most people aren't going to open their barber shops. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that some people are willing to go to the nail salon or go to the movie theater, they're going to do it with such extreme caution mm-hmm. um, that people will be astonished. And the the simple fact of the matter is that the mitigation efforts that we're doing with the shelter in place beyond the goal of trying to ensure that we don't crash the healthcare system by inundating it with too many people um, at one time, those policies cannot go on indefinitely. No, they can't. And the quality of your mitigation program is necessarily limited by the quality of the mitigation program of the folks next door to you and the folks next door to them. Mm-hmm. At some point, we all begin to mingle again and you're dealing with this thing again and it flares up again. And I, I don't know that we can go on without allowing ourselves the room to try and figure out how to live in a world where COVID is a thing, especially since it's going to be a thing for some time to come. The vaccine is not going to be here anytime soon. We may have treatments sooner than that. I think we we kind of have to get out there um, and start making some efforts to do this. And we do just have to have confidence that people can be not completely ridiculously stupid. We've shut off the economy. And that you can do. You can actually make a pronouncement that says shutter all of your businesses. Reopening the economy, you simply can't do by fiat. It's going to be a decision that people make whether or not they will go out and shop again and go out and get food at the restaurant or any of these other things. And I don't think you could actually no one has the capacity to force Americans to do that tomorrow. Most Americans won't do that for some time. Whatever economic damage is likely to be wrought from that will be wrought. But there is something important that happens once folks actually start to probe again and figure mm-hmm. out how they can do business in this environment. And the, the ridiculous belief that you can pause the economy so long as you just keep giving people money while they're waiting for everything to get going again, like, is just that a ridiculous belief? Like the economy is about more than just making enough money to be able to pay your rent and your mortgage. Like it's a dynamic system for coordinating complex activity across billions of people. And if you pause it and you keep paying people the same amount of money, you are not actually sustaining the economy. You're no. just you're just prolonging the the uncertainty, perhaps deepening the problem and making matters worse for yourself later. This is it's a, a, a it's one of those things where it's kind of seen and unseen, but it's necessarily the case. And there is some advantage, even if it's going to be shitty going in Georgia for a while, and it will be, um, to allowing folks to try to figure out how to make things work. So I'm, 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 I think I'm for this. And my hope is that it isn't particular, particularly consequential. My suspicion is whether or not it is consequential, there yeah. will be intensely negative media coverage. Sure. Of like, and I don't know if George is the example. I don't know. I, I'm not, I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't know what's happening there. So I don't know if it's an example. Maybe people should be still sheltering in place. I mean, I mean, even the president is saying this. Who knows? 
Um, you know, Scott Gottlieb saying this. Um, but to your point of like the scene and the unseen is like you can use all these old economic parables of that, you know, if you give two people shovels, right? And one guy digs a hole and the other guy fills it in. Did you create two jobs? Mm-hmm. No, you didn't. Right. There's a lot of stuff like that going on. It's like we're paying people like, oh, the economy's still going. We're paying. It's like, no, but nobody's producing anything. And that's what mm-hmm. an economy essentially is. If we're yeah, just yeah. kind of shuffling money around, that is not a great thing. Um, I think that one of the things that that has really alarmed me about this. And one of the things that's actually heartened me in some ways is that the American people, when they go outside and they see people wearing masks and there's a diktat from the government to wear masks, they trust that that is meaningful, right? And whether or not that's true, they, they do it, right? They just go out and they do it. And the Swedes have been really funny about this because they love talking about how great they are at, you know, doing X, Y, and Z. The Swedes do everything great and they'll tell you about it all the time. And like, oh, we follow rules. Nobody else is like, no, no, no. This is a life and death situation. People follow rules. It's not just you guys. Get the fuck out of here. Everyone's doing it. There was no masks. And one day, everybody had masks. In, in, in DC, I was there for a couple of days. To go into a store, you have to have a mask, and everyone had masks. The same thing was in Maryland, wherever we stopped, uh, New Jersey too, I think. So is everyone had them, and people were following these mm-hmm. rules. And you see the latest uh, opinion polls about opening things up, and was it seventy seven percent were against it because people are like taking this stuff very seriously. At times, I think they're taking it too seriously. And what I mean by too seriously is not that this is not horribly you know, deadly and killing far more people than we would have a day on day deaths last year, for instance. There's no doubt about that whatsoever. It's something to be taken very seriously. But I think that there's such paranoia in people who always tell you, believe the science. You don't care about the science, 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 science. Republicans hate science. I love science. I'll give you an example. Four <laughs> of four of us were standing on 14th Street, 14th and you um, drinking uh, because we got takeaway booze. In uh, in sippy cups, it was great. And if it was 1968, you would have been beaten to death, flayed, <laughs> Bur- Bur- burned, burned, burned. Depends. You know, if it was like April 5th, that probably would have been a bad time. Yeah. In 1968, that was when I was burned down. Um, but so we were hanging out there, and a woman, you know, normal woman, it looks like a very professional DC woman. We're standing, you know, probably 10 feet apart on, in like a square, in in the sidewalk is in the middle of us, right? We're on either sides. She looks, she panics, she stops and looks, no joke, starts running, runs through us. And I'm like, no, 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 we're not, you're not going to get coronavirus. We're not, no, we breathe and it's going to hit your skin and you're going to go down like a World War One movie when you get like a <laughs> shrapnel in the back and then you're pulled off the battlefield. And we were all like, what the fuck just happened? And then somebody I was talking to today said, oh yeah, routinely in my neighborhood, people go to the other side of the street. When they, when we're, cause we just don't want to be on the same side of the street. I'm like, but that's not real. The, yeah. You tell yeah. people not to sit on, on a bench together, you know, and when, when, when governments are closing state parks that have thousands and thousands of acres, like, you know, um, uh, one of my cameras, dad lives in, 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 uh, I think in Maryland, I think it was Maryland. He mm-hmm. said state park, this older guy, state park that he goes and walks in. He can't go and walk in there anymore. Now he's just stuck at home. And like this stuff is crazy. It is making people even crazier. So to Camille's point, when you open stuff up, when you say, oh, no, no, you go in state parks, you're going to get it. If you walk down the street and you go between people, you're going to get it. People aren't going to go out. And so I think that if you opened everything up tomorrow, you're going to have a lot of people that are not going to, and that is also really, really disastrous for, for economies too. When you're like, okay, now I can actually bring all my people back. 
bring my people back into, you know, cook food and make drinks, whatever. And they're maybe, you know, half the number of people that were there previously. It's all it's very depressing. There's too much stuff going on right now. It's it's too much to think about. Like, you know, we're in New York City, Michael and I are in New York City and like the number of uh, (laughs) we don't abandon our city. uh, No, seriously, like, (laughs) dude, we don't abandon. But like, it is not human to act like a hamster in a cage at all. And (laughs) it isn't. It's like it it drives you nuts. Like my uh, uh, five year old uh, about five days ago uh, pronounced apropos of nothing. She wasn't prompted. And granted, she's got her own problems. Um, (laughs) I don't think that I am human anymore. That's mm-hmm. what she mm-hmm. And did you say, sweetheart, we thought that before COVID? I mean, I was trying to be nice. Um, <laughs> at least she doesn't have an Instagram account, Mr. Moynihan. Or a Twitter <laughs> account. Uh, we'll talk about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, like, like it's not, it's not human or right. And the, the, um, and regardless of any of that, it seems so obvious to me, even as the, total non-epidemiologist like being on a beach not near people that's that's what you want to do that's the good thing that you want to do let's go towards that as soon as we can and we can figure everything else out later like so if we can get this to a place where there's more of us outside and distancing there great but all of which is to say like it's impossible in this moment of high clenching craziness. And Camille uh, talked about the trillions that are going out the window and there's all these other, uh, other measures that are going out. Like we haven't, and we can't uh, possibly think about how much this has changed the way basic things are uh, apportioned in an economy. Like does New York exist? In this way, there's a good piece by Zach Weissmuller over at uh, Reason TV uh, that uh, had Joel Kotkin and Richard Florida and other urbanists like talking about this. Um, I don't know. I, we don't know. Like, do we never? The, what, what is professional sports ever again? Are we going to get into Barclays? 18,000 of us to mm-hmm. root on a goddamn anything. I'm not so sure about that. Right. Like, I'm not. And so what are the in New York like restaurants in New York famously are like tiny tables. How can we get as many tables as possible in as small a place mm-hmm. to make Matt feel as claustrophobic as humanly possible? Okay. Well, that is not a model that can possibly work in the future. We can't wrap our brains around it. And uh, there's going right. there's going to be regardless of like the overall like trend of there's going to be x amount of growth um there's going to be way more x amount of reorientation things that have existed based on what we knew before based on social proximity and whatever that's not how shit's going to go in the future and it's going to be i think i suspect it's going to be greater than we can currently fathom just because we haven't been here before. We haven't been here. So what's your most sure. radical doom laden prediction? Both of you. I mean, Jonas said something tonight that an economist had said to me that I interviewed a couple weeks ago about the roaring twenties uh, after the Spanish flu. And this economist was saying, Oh, you know, it's going to come, it's going to come back. And Camille, I told, I told, we, we had this conversation and Camille like rolled his eyes when I said this and, you know, the guy made some good points and I'll, I'll send you the interview that we've done. 
Um, but you know, I, I, I tend towards both Camille's eye roll and Matt's, um, you know, skepticism that there's going to be any normalcy anytime soon. So what mm-hmm. is the prediction that both of you make that like, holy shit, life is going to be totally different. And it's going to stay that way. I don't know. I don't Sports? know how long it'll stay Sports? that way. Are we going to have 80,000 people to an arena? Probably not for the next year or two. Two years. I can't imagine that's it. huge though, isn't it? Two years of yeah. no I, it's concerts, a big deal. I, like, I, no sporting events. Very hard to imagine. And I, I was talking to Dan Beer at Freethink, who we all know, um, who is actually doing like very good work on this stuff um, for us. I was talking to him today about the period of time when the Spanish flu was wreaking havoc in the United States. And the United States had also dealt with polio. Mm-hmm. And it was a time when this bizarre malady could mangle and kill all sorts of people from presidents of the United States to the children to, you know, Grandma Joan. They could all get it. And I don't know if in 2020, when people have have imagined themselves safe from most of these things, when people imagine that their medicine is sufficiently and their science is sufficiently powerful to overcome most maladies. And we all ought to be able to live to sort of a ripe old age, as opposed to dealing with this suffering up close and personal, even with the Spanish flu being again, like, like far worse than the, the previous normal. It wasn't unprecedented in the way that this feels unprecedented. Like people are shaken to their core and I don't know that they're going to be unshell shocked anytime soon. And, and I think that that's likely to be pretty consequential in ways that are hard to calibrate. My my answer to the question is that um, and it's not based on any kind of knowledge or anything. Um, uh, it, no, really. <laughs> seriously. <laughs> that's why people listen, man. Thank you. It's not based on any knowledge. None. Pull it out of your ass. No, like the. Trends that got us here the last 10 years worldwide, uh, which is a trend towards populism of the left and right, uh, both of which are anti-trade, anti-international exchange, anti-whatever mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is perceived to be um, kind of uh, extra uh, political groups or extra international groups that have uh, power, uh, all of that is going to be accelerated by this. I mean, Donald Trump, I believe about two nights ago, um, said that he was going to like that. We have, we're going to, I'm going to stop the immigration once and for all. Um, and I, and I laugh. <laughs> You've already closed the borders, but whatever. I laugh. Um, <laughs> but like, actually this is this, there are versions of the borders being closed, which are in effect already, and it has nothing to do with um, the tweets of, of any uh, president about that. But like also the politicians who are interested in that one way or the other are going to be tripling down on that uh, going forward, as are all politicians who say that, hey, we need to make sure that. All of our productions of X happens within the borders of our country. So all of those things have been on the rise on the right and the left in the last eight years uh, globally on a geopolitical kind of uh, viewpoint. And this was uh, 
with the exception of Greece and a couple of other places, in the absence of actual economic difficulties. And so now we have economic difficulties absolutely everywhere on the globe, everywhere, 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 uh, especially in Camille's favorites, a red China um, now and a, a red Chinese bad actor who is trying to react to all of this is going to make a lot of erratic and bad decisions for absolute sure. Um, and so are increasingly a number of countries that we thought were in a category that were kind of impervious to those types of erratic decisions that we'd normally um, say that we would expect from a Slovak president or some other kind of president. So, um, yeah, I, the, 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 what you're trying to say is Donald Trump, don't trust China. China is asshole. China is asshole. <laughs> China's asshole. It's, I, yeah, I'm not going to say it's, it. It's too much. It's it's too not much. for me. Not going to say not it. for me. I just said it. Not. If, by the way, if you live, if you watch Louis's new special, he does an Asian accent. Oh, no. Oh, that is so good. And that bit That's is so good. funny when he's like, I'm not going to. I, I'm not going to lie. That's what she said. And That's how she it, said like, it. In like a full English sentence where the verbs are contrary. It's like, it's a lie. I can't do it. So I have to do it. And if he does it in like his accent, like you like food, it sounds weird. So he has to do it in the accent. And it's a very, very funny bit. Oh, so it's worth oh watching that. But you, did you see that, Camille? I did. I did. Did you it like was it? Very worth watching. Yes, it's absolutely. Very, very funny. It's ve- it was very funny. Um, um, oh, speaking of which, can we do a political story about that? That's brief, and we can maybe end. I don't know about, about Louis. Yeah. Did you see that the Biden campaign gave Louis's contribution back? No, no, I didn't yeah. see that. Louis, Louis, after Biden clinched the nomination and Bernie was not not uh, going to be the candidate. Biden gave whatever the maximum was, um, 5,200. I can't remember the maximum. And uh, uh, it was pointed out. And uh, uh, Jezebel had a story today about how um, they gave the money back because of his behavior. And, um, you know, Joe is, of course, under suspicion of very similar behavior. She but, talks about uh, Joe's behavior. Yeah, yeah. yeah, not similar behavior, worse behavior. But uh, <laughs> so Louis C.K. not only can't catch a break, but I thought the guy probably doesn't have a ton of money. Well, not he has a ton of money. He didn't, he's not, has, he's got he a ton have, of money. Yes. He doesn't have as much money as he would have had, had this not happened. Just put it that way. Mm-hmm. And so he I think still he sold get, a lot of copies of that special. So he, he I don't know. Could afford it. I found three, three, three headlines that said, uh, variations on, uh, Louis CK releases a special that nobody asked for. That yeah. was the headline. Uh, Slate had one. I can't remember the Daily Beast, of course. The people watched horrible, it. Horrible. Yeah. People watched it. And, they watched yeah. it, and and unless they're unless they're monsters, they laughed. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you know they, the last movie it. I saw in the theater? I don't remember what it was, but I, whatever it was, I didn't ask for it. <laughs> I was like, "Holy shit!" Nineteen seventeen is that? So funny. I was just asking for a movie about World War One, and they just I'm happy they came through. I didn't ask for it. So anyway. Um, only, only because it, it got name checked earlier and then maybe we, we do just punch out of here. Um, the, the, the last time we talked, the anti quarantine protests were just getting underway. Um, this was before the president had tweeted liberate folks. Um, but these, these protests have been growing and one media narrative that had been pretty prominent um, is something that was exemplified by this headline in the Washington Post 
Um, the anti-quarantine protests seem spontaneous, but behind the scenes, a powerful network is helping. Ah, uh, yes. And it goes on to detail not the specific ways that major conservative mega donors are funding this campaign, but the various tenuous connections to these major donor networks and the fact that there happens to be some overlap between people who are generally friendly to Donald Trump and some of these protesters who are in the street and folks who might be interested in organizations or associated with organizations that might be helping these protesters in the street. It may in fact be the case that there is some money that's helping to drive these protests. But two things I think are true. One is that a lot of this stuff is incredibly speculative. And in a couple of cases, there are claims made by by folks who are interviewed by the journalist who wrote this story um, that just simply are not substantiated. Um, at Such the, as? Towards the end, towards the end, um, someone is quoted as saying, the involvement of the Koch institutional apparatus and groups supporting these protests is clear to me. Um, <laughs> this is... This is Robert Burrell, a sociologist at Drexel University, whose research has focused on climate lobbying. Um, mm -hmm. He goes on to say that the presence of allies on the board usually means that they are deeply engaged in the organization and most likely a funder, which translated Wait, into English. <laughs> that actually means I don't have any evidence whatsoever that the Cokes are giving these people money, but I think it's true because someone who knows them is on the board of something related to them. Wait, but wasn't there a story today in Politico that the Coke? Yes, indeed, there was. Look at that. The Cokes, I'm saying the Cokes up, explicitly. The Cokes explicitly saying not only are they not supporting this organization, that they are totally not in favor of these particular protests. Um, so, I, I find it, I find it a little frustrating that stories like this get written. Um, I also think it's a bit odd that this story seems to parallel so well, like a lot of the narratives that I heard like during Black Lives Matter from conservatives, that they were deeply concerned about like George Soros, like busting people in and all these corporate protests that weren't genuine. It actually does not matter if there's corporate support for no, some of doesn't. these protests. It does not at all. There it are tangible reasons why some people might be really upset about this. Um, it's also the case that the, the quarantine measures are generally pretty popular in most states. Yes. Um, yeah. But I suspect that that popularity might be harder to maintain than most people appreciate. I think so, that's right. Yeah. No, uh, it's, also it, the, the it's, Confederate flag thing. I've seen like two or three pictures of them. There's no evidence that that they're typically representative of the people who are at these events. And there's every reason to suspect that most of the people who show up with those things probably aren't, in fact, racist and see them as uh, carrying mm. them defiantly as a mechanism for like thumbing their nose at people. Well, I don't but know. That's just Camille's that. generous perspective. Yeah, I'm, on not, these I'm not going to agree with I don't you see, on that one. I don't see the, I don't <laughs> see the obvious connection between racism and reopening the economy. I just don't see it. Well, someone look, will have to I explain think, that I, I to me. I don't see the, I don't see the connection between bringing a fucking AR 15 and reopening the economy because well, it, I, I do. There's no connection. 
in some of in some of these states where they've closed, they actually also tried to close gun stores and there were legal fights Does, about the right to keep gun stores open. So but, for them, but no, they see these two uh, things as linked. Yeah, and that's precisely what it's, it is. No, no, that's dumb. It, it's I'm dumb. not saying that it's smart. I'm not no, saying it's, it's smart, but that because is gun what's stores happening. are being closed with everything else. If it was like normal times, <laughs> they're like, let's close all gun stores. Okay. But the the same thing is like if you when we talk earlier with Jonah Goldberg about the idiot saying that Trump is presaging fascism. This is the exact same thing that they're like, oh my God, we have to take our weapons out because they're, the government is putting its boot heel on our necks and we got a show of force. It's like, stop fucking LARPing. I mean, you're like these fat losers in fucking camo. And you know what? I'll tell you what. There's like one, two, three Confederate flags that are recycled. It's like there are 600 pictures I've seen of these like type nine diabetes cases heaving and like heavy breathing with their fucking AR-15s. Like, gonna, I'm going to defend my state against what? Like, yes. I think people are overreacting in, in so many ways and we've talked about it, but like these people yeah. do make my life so much harder when I'm trying to say like, I don't know, maybe we should start opening things up in like, you know, protect the old people. Let's open this black there. And it's like, Oh, you're one of those guys that has a fucking sign about their freedom being squashed by this. It's like, this is not that I think that there are problems in this, but this is not a malevolent plot to limit people's freedom in the long term. These are people doing things, Republicans and Democrats, by the way. And like the, like the president, if the president said, yes, let's open up Georgia. And then Stacey Abrams said no. And the exact same thing that Donald Trump said, we would say, oh, look at her. Look at her. It's like, no, Trump's saying the same thing. Trump's saying, let's not do it. So like it's that is not a motivation for people to say, like, I don't want to open the economy Let's, you know, we want small business to die. We want socialism to take over. It's like, yeah, I get that there is a lot of people being opportunistic about this and saying, oh, well, we need the Green New Deal. And all these people have been lost their jobs. They no longer have health insurance. So therefore, single payer is probably something we should be pushing right now. I get it. You know what? I'm also not, I'm not mad about it. And the reason I'm not mad about it, because they would be fucking morons if they didn't take this opportunity as politicians to make political points. That's what we do. Oh, we're going to, they should sit back and say, no, 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 let's ride this out. what Republicans do, right? They ride out crises without ever pushing their beliefs. Make the case against their beliefs. Don't get mad at them for pushing them, right? And also, don't pretend that people out there who have AR-15s and have like masks on and are dressed like they're in the military and they're not in the military. They're people that like, I, trust me, they couldn't pass the most basic physical <laughs> test to get in the fucking military. The people are out there dressed like this, that they're defending their liberty. It's a come on. If this goes on for four or five months, Okay, I'll be there with you. Right now, <laughs> come the fuck on. You're LARPing and stop it. You look stupid. And the signs that you have are stupid. That said, the media doing a very great job of being tricked by fucking like agent provocateurs who have signs that say, let the weak die or whatever it was. And how many people reported yeah. that? It's like, yeah, no, fake, come fake on. The guy's got a mask on. Well. That's not yeah. real. There's someone screwing with you and you're falling for it. It's like conservatives going into Occupy Wall Street and it says, you know, collectivize the grain and shoot the rich. Ask the guy their name, for Christ's sake, before you run that. Picture. Jack Schaefer had a, a tweet uh, today. Great media writer for Now Politico um, and uh, great alt journalist and media thinker for a long time. 
um, who just pointed out in the midst of the latest White House press briefing about coronavirus, <laughs> wouldn't it be great if all of the people asking questions at this briefing directed it to the public health professionals? Which was an exaggeration of a point. There are some points that are properly directed at the head of the political and executive branch apparatus and that only that apparatus can address. However, his broader point is very well taken, I think, which is that the White House press corps is set up, as Michael and Camilla both mentioned, um, to reward those moments of conflict and to actually uh, uh, Jay Rosen had a, a, a 20 tweet storm today of which the first, <laughs> by the way, if you want to make me commit suicide, say Jay Rosen had a 20 tweet yeah. storm. <laughs> but I would actually uh, direct people's attention to the first seven which are, I think, <laughs> no, seriously. The next 13 are not very good. No, but like <laughs> it's it's actually for those who care. I mean, to the extent that we talk a lot on this podcast about the approach of journalism in the time of Trump, um, the first seven get something that's fundamentally true. He's talking about the limitations of the metaphor to shine a light, to be a beacon you know, to, to, to put sunlight on stuff. That's true. And yeah. he points out, mm -hmm. and I think in a very useful way, and I'm someone who obviously mangles metaphors for a living, but like he, he like <laughs> teases this out in an interesting way. Jay Rosen mangles thoughts for a He living. then gets to, oh God, gets to many places. That, I'm drunk and angry, Camille. That I, I disagree with him about, but there's something to all of that. Like the, um, the way that the media is oriented right now is for moments, super illusory moments of gotcha about, my God, can you believe that you said this then and now you're saying this then? Um, which are mm -hmm. in themselves, in many cases, justifiable. But as like a, a preponderance of what you're talking about, they're not. And the Jack Schaefer point mm -hmm. of like, right now, we're in the middle of a pandemic. It'd be good to talk to people who have some ideas about that pandemic and some specific answers. Those are also important. Um, it's it's yeah. so difficult in this uh, current situation to get outside of that. Uh, th there's no obvious opportunity for it. But you just yeah. said, the last thing I'll say about that is you don't need to be an epidemiologist to say, I want to make money and I want my business not to fall apart and collapse. And I uh, want to get yeah. back into that. Like, cause that's the th argument of like, well, are you an epidemiologist? Like, no, I, but I'm hungry and I have yeah. bills to pay and stop treating me like some fucking Trumpkin because I want to open my business again. And that's become the narrative. And it's really frustrating is that, you know, I think that, that, that you can make a left wing case that this is harming poor people. And the longer you keep this going, Undoubtedly. the more Undoubtedly. you harm poor people. Stop harming yeah. poor people. Do I want yeah. other, do I want old people to die? No, I want this to do, be done in the right way. But I also don't want the debate when you raise these issues to be something that is immediately sort of castigated as this silly Trump or, or, or set apart as this kind of Trumpian argument. How dare you make it? Why are you one of these people that wants uh, more people to die? I've seen the number of tweets I saw on the other day. It's like saying you want to open X, Y, or Z 
is objectively, you know, when somebody says objectively, it, you know, it's going to be yeah, a bad yeah. argument. It's like you're, objecti- you're objectively pro Saddam kind of thing. You're objectively <laughs> pro death of old people. It's like, no, I'm not objectively right. that. I'm objectively yep. trying to make sure that the economy doesn't die and the people who rely on it die with it. You know, in a, in a fairly rich country, like we have the luxury of doing certain things. Um, mm-hmm. I, I saw a piece today, I think it was in Axios, which means it's actually written up extensively someplace else and bulleted at Axios <laughs> um, <laughs> about the the tangible risk of mass starvation in certain places. Um, and that is a real thing. Uh, and again, there are limits to what you can do with these mitigation policies and there's a balance to be struck. And when it comes to talking about balances and trade-offs, like the public health expert and the epidemiologist aren't necessarily going to give you those perspectives. And there is a very real risk. Um, and, and the way that we talk about science, uh, we've talked about it before on the podcast, but in general, it makes me somewhat uncomfortable because we become overly deferential to people who profess to have expertise um, in this area who, as has been demonstrated by the lack of response early on and the mistakes that have been made by people who are as beloved as Fauci (laughs) has become, um, who was waiting on community spread before taking certain mitigative steps early on, while community spread was already happening, there are a great many unknowns. There is always the risk of people engaging in groupthink, and there is necessarily going to be a reluctance among experts to be the first person to move away from the inordinately cautious position of presuming the absolute worst. And that inordinately cautious position of presuming the absolute worst doesn't cost you anything to hold yourself, but can have profound consequences for the rest of the country. So skepticism is appropriate and criticism is appropriate. And I get concerned when I see this New York, um, this NBC News, Wall Street Journal poll from earlier this week, where the CDC, the CDC and the FDA, who were responsible for, in large part, the testing fiasco at the very early outset of this, have these massive rate of approval amongst voters sure. who are participating in these surveys. Like the institution How, Camille, survives. because Fox News is telling them something different. They should all be killing themselves because of it. <laughs> the institution survives mm. and it doesn't get the criticism that it probably ought to. Um, and I don't know. I don't know if there's if there's a sufficient level of skepticism. And I think you can regard the pandemic as serious while also measuring the recommendations that you're getting from the epidemiologist and trying yeah. to ask rigorous questions. But ask Americans, I mean, honestly, ask Americans because they don't know. They, they're not, Americans are not informed in these things. And don't use the acronym. Ask Americans, do they approve of, do they like, are they confident in the World Health Organization? World Health Organization will be enough to get over 50%, I guarantee you. Sure. I guarantee sure. you. And it's not like, sure. oh, well, we know, but the China stuff, and that's bad because, you know, obviously Camille knows about it very well because he had a very long <laughs> debate with somebody um, who said he was a Patreon subscriber. And if you are, send us a message because I'm sure you're listening to this. Um, <laughs> um, I muted him. He, uh, he got a little too uppity. Well, I'd, <laughs> I'd say, well, <laughs> but the thing that I'll say about this is that when you when you mentioned that that study about about um, hunger, I saw one place this morning. I was I was on, you know, I, I, I checked out after like 830 
uh, AM this morning, but I saw mm. one reference to it. And why is that study not getting the same amount of attention and be treated the same amount of breathlessness of the mm. Imperial College studies that said 2.5 million dead or something? Because if we're right. talking, I don't know if that model is probably a piece of shit. Maybe that's not going to happen. I probably I sure. think it probably won't. But I mean, just my instinct, and that's based on zero, nothing. And I acknowledge that. But why is that not? Um, freaking people out. Well, I think that right now the response to that, to prevent that, that sort of hunger would be al- allowing the economy to open in certain places. And that seems vaguely Trumpian. So we're not going to, we're not going to actually parrot that study. It's not like we're looking at the methodology of the study and disagreeing with it. It's just like, it doesn't seem like it's something that we should be, should we be. We can't relate um, to hunger. We can't. I mean, we can't relate yeah. to starvation deaths. Yes. In the first no. or second world, we can relate to body bags, you know, in New York City or or excess deaths in ways that just boggle the imagination. So that's it. Mm-hmm. I, I really think like like yeah. it's a second order thing. You're asking people in especially in the midst of a crisis to uh, to think about like a, a second order effect. That's really hard yeah. as those of us who think uh that it's all right to have um international exchange of goods and services which is an increasingly unpopular opinion um mm-hmm. like uh, you know it's it's hard for people who have that opinion to make their arguments because what they're trying to uh, to argue for are gradual declines in x and x happens to be starvation um mm-hmm. and a bunch of other stuff um so like yeah you can't focus the mind you can't focus the mind in the similar way that um the number of refugees in the world um has over the last 7 years essentially doubled in a way that we haven't seen mm-hmm. since the end of world war 2 um what do you do with that information well i you know it's hard uh what what yep. in fact the united states has done under President Jim Acosta um, over the last four years, <laughs> he's got a, he has a terrifying amount of power. It really like it. Yeah. But you know what? Yeah. Don't me. blame Jim Acosta. The president That's responds good. to him in the way that the president should respond. Shouldn't respond. Yeah, to him. He, he plays the game. Yeah. And Acosta is like, bless his, bless his heart in a way. Yeah. I mean, like the guy's, he's a performer. He's on, he's on TV. The president, he's the president. Stop fucking doing it. Uh, so <laughs> anyways, President Jim Acosta has shut off, uh, yeah, the, the intake of refugees in this country. Like we haven't ever seen anything like it. It's the yeah. only thing that comes close to it is what George W. Bush did in 2002 after, I don't know. Like Saudi Arabia blew up the World Trade Centers. Um, so, uh, and, what's up, White KRS One? <laughs> yeah. Skeptical, skeptical much? Yeah. Not yeah, it was really, the Saudis themselves. Really? Yeah, uh, yeah I know. The I, truth, know I, I know where you it think. was. You nigga. Yeah, that's that's Bush that's knocked staff. down the towers. Yeah, in the mortal technique. So <laughs> <Tell> the truth. <laughs> At any rate, there is a real world of, uh, of impact on this kind of shit, and it, and it, it yeah. is specifically on the the uh, the free exchange of of human beings and, and whatnot, and yeah, like. Yeah. When you are asking why people don't get excited about, you know, the starvation numbers, they can't feel it. There's no starvation can, in the Bronx. Yeah. Can, can I ask a can I ask a question before we go? 
and I don't know because I don't know if this is true because I haven't been paying a ton of attention. I've been on the road, but um, the numbers in New York have gone down considerably, right? Very, have, very considerably. Very, we talked about but that. At I the top. have yeah. not seen. Like I, f- I found it hard today, and this mm-hmm. is just truth. This is not me making a political. It's just what happened. To, I tr- found it hard today to find what was going on without actually watching live um, um, Cuomo's press conference. So I'm like, wait, what is going on? I'm looking and looking, and it took me a while, and it seemed like the numbers were going down. But I was in the middle of something, and I was on my phone, so I couldn't actually find. It. Yeah. But one, I mean, I know. Like, I, here's the thing: is like the, the media does fucking suck. In the sense of mm-hmm. like they are doom mongers and it's just gr- gr- like they just the most gruesome images they love. And then like I'm trying to find I'm not trying to find good news, trying to any news. Maybe it's good news. Maybe it's bad. I got no idea. I have no idea. Is the USS Comfort full or empty? I don't empty. know. There's been There's no nobody, reporting. Nobody on in there. Empty. Empty. There's nobody in there. Field hospital in in Central Park. Empty. I heard that. I heard that it was bad because there were some religious people and they didn't like gay people or something. That's all I heard about it. I didn't hear that it was empty or full. The Javits Center, we we conditioned to like, I'm happy that happened because, you know, it looked like it was going to be bad. So we should have that that contingency set up. Great. But what sure. happened to it? Nobody's told totally me empty. about any of those things. Yeah. And they're not telling me if those numbers are going down. I'm sure it exists, but I have to fucking look for it. Am I wrong? It's, it's like, Am I just the, not? The numbers... No, you're you're absolutely right. And the numbers are actually um, inspiring in, in some respects, like the actual number of new cases God, hate good news. is way down, like the the number of um, deaths per day is down. I have seen people, as Matt, you mentioned down. earlier, re- relate, re- reporting the um, the total number of deaths in New York, because that number continues to be just it. it it smacks you in the face yeah. in a startling sort of way. We should know but that. That really isn't that really isn't the story in in an important respect. The story is that New York City um does seem to be on the other side of the worst part of this now. I do hear people talking a lot about second waves and what things might look like in the winter. Um I also think a lot of those projections <laughs> though actually disregard the fact that we are going to change our behavior and it's going to remain changed. And but even when if it is true, by the way, starts to peak it, again, people will they'll, they'll respond accordingly. I mean, look, it very might well be true that there's going to be a second wave. I've heard a lot about this and I, I'm sure there's a lot of trustworthy people. Who I, say I think it, so. I think that's, I think that's true. I think I that's probably, I, I think it's probably right. that it'll be, but there's a glee in which people say like, Oh, there's good news. Let's, let's, let's find the future bad news. Yeah. <laughs> so let's project that there's going to be a second wave. It's like, how about we just say now? It's like, but I think that people don't like, I don't want people to be complacent. It's like, no, why stop doing that? Trust people and allow them to go like go outside and wear their masks and do their thing, but also give them the accurate information that is coming out of the city of New York and, you know, whoever else is releasing information that is showing that this stuff is, is bending in the right direction. That's a good thing. And I'm happy to hear it. I would, I would just uh, say, I don't know how many people feeling glee at anything like they, well, it's a glee is the wrong word. I'm being being an asshole. I'm being an asshole about this and I don't mean glee is the wrong word, but they're just like, there is a negativity that overwhelms journalism at a certain point, particularly when, you know, this fucking assholes on the other side, Donald Trump is that, you know, it's, it's, you know, you see it in, in, in like the public shaming of people who aren't wearing the mask in the right way, or they're not social distancing. 
it's like everywhere you go, stop. I am the smart person here. You're the dummy. I am the journalist and I am the epidemiologist, whatever. You don't know what you're doing. And like, we have to eye roll at these people. Look at what they're doing. Look at what they're doing. And there's a part of that, that when the numbers are going down, I think there's an instinct to find the worst. Like, so for instance, I sent Camille, did I send it to both of you? I sent it to Camille, a doctor. who's a friend of a friend and said about Sweden's numbers, right? And they put a chart in my friend sent it to me and said, I know this person, they're a well-regarded doctor in New York City at Columbia. And this is different than the numbers you sent me. Because it's Sweden way at the top and everything is about... The, oh, yeah. It's, it's, yeah it was yeah. crazy. I was like... And I looked at it and she's like, what's different? And so I went and redid the numbers and I sent her the, the chart back. And the, what, was, what was happening was that they cherry-picked all of the numbers of people, the countries in Europe that were lower than Sweden and didn't right. include any of them that were higher. And that is a deliberate choice. To not yeah. include Belgium in the numbers, not include France in the numbers, not include Italy, not include Spain. And it's like Sweden is higher than Finland, is higher than Norway, et cetera. We don't know how this stuff will end. We don't know why that is for a lot of reasons. Is it because of the of uh, Andres Tegnell and their and their ideas? Maybe. Yeah, I think that could it's very it's plausible for sure. But these are people that do not want you to know that it's somewhere in the middle, that Sweden was somewhere in the middle in those deaths per million. And that's a doctor at Columbia. So it's not glee. That's you're right. But there is a certain thing of like, let's try to find the worst case scenario in all of this. And I don't know if it's to scare people into staying in their homes. I don't know what the motivation is, but I've seen this a lot and I don't know why it is, but it's very, very disconcerting. I would just say that, I guess, um, like being living in this I, which is now like an epicenter, right? Of of, of yeah. where this shit happens. Um, that's not the behavior that I notice among my neighbors and people around. Like it exists. It certainly exists when people are trying to make political arguments, especially in social media and elsewhere of how can I twist this to make the president look bad? Sometimes it's even how can I make this at, to make them look good. at cross purposes to make Bill de Blasio look bad or whatever, or Sweden, which is a, a flashpoint. Jonah, uh, uh, not Jonah, but uh, Johan Norberg uh, had a good piece for a reason mm. a couple of, of days ago he did a very good piece about that. Um, that just kind of like walks through the difficult math and it's difficult. It's not like obvious. You can't look at one chart and come up with the answer. Yeah. And so like, if you actually care about the answer and you fucking don't, although you listen to this no. podcast, so thank God you do. <laughs> but for the vast majority of people, you fucking don't, you don't, no. you want to fucking forward me a fucking email about like how like yeah. Sweden proves this fucking thing. Fuck you. Fuck you. But think you get them both ways. Also, fuck you. And don't but send me. Get them both ways. Don't send me Todd Starnes's fucking video about empty oh fucking. Uh, <laughs> who sent you that? People. Block them. People. Who do you know that would People. send you a Todd Starnes? Not any fifth column fans. Thankfully. Thank God. Not fifth column fans. Yeah. But fucking people. And I want to punch dad, them <laughs> in the face with my it's, with my. We should, wrap, we should wrap this up. It's although, although we. It's we've well. got no, we've got a lot of great um fifth we've got a lot of fifth column um emails that that require some responding That's to for the Patreon um and we'll we'll do it on the Patreon. Well, good. Bye. 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 We, we, we know of new methods of attack.
Trojan horror.